Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. It's back a second time on this podcast. The last time we talked about the Roman army, which I highly recommend checking out. He's the author of several books, including both fiction, non-fiction, including Roman army, Augustus, Philip and Alexander, and many more, including Caesar, which we are going to discuss today. And if I were to go through this entire biography, we would have wasted this entire episode just on that, I'm sure. But so let's not do that today. We, you know, but I want to begin with how, refresh your memory from the last time. How did you come about studying Roman history? Well, I grew up in a part of South Wales in, in Western Britain where um, the big city next to me is called Cardiff, which is from the Welsh Caer, which comes from Castro, the Latin, on the River Taff. So it was a Roman fort. And not too far away, there's the remains, another place called Caelian, again, the same route from Castra turned into modern Welsh into English. And that was the base of Legio Second Augusta for several centuries. There's an amphitheater there, there are barrack blocks. So I've always loved history. I grew up listening to stories told by my father and his friends about the Second World War and um, times like that. And it's fascinating for a boy. And then I could go and touch things the Romans had built. They'd come to where I live. They seem to be part of my story. So although almost any history fascinates me and, you know, I can get excited, get interested anywhere I go, you see something and you think, oh, I'd like to know more about that. There's something particularly about the Romans that has always just fascinated me. And it's been that that element of them having come here added to when I was young, watching on TV, some of the old epic movies like Spartacus and Ben-Hur and this sort of thing. There was just something dramatic about the Romans. The Romans are never dull. So that's how it's happened. I, I was lucky enough to be able to study it, do my doctorate on ancient history, write about the Roman army. And then, much to my surprise, people have kept on asking me to write books about it. So I, I get to do something I'd be studying as a hobby anyway. Whatever I was doing, I get to do it as a as a living. So it's still... It's still as exciting now as it always has been. So there's just something something about the Romans, something about history, but particularly the Romans that intrigues me. And of course, they're going to discuss the legendary Julius Caesar today. And uh, let's begin with his upbringing, because he didn't come from a very wealthy family. His wealth would come later. And so let's talk about his upbringing. And he, of course, his family back, background, because he did claim rather interesting heritage, if you will. <laughs> Well, you have the the two classes of people in the Republic of Rome. You've got the patricians and the plebeians. And the plebeians are the overwhelming majority. And by by Caesar's day, he's probably born in 100 BC. Most of the, the big, powerful aristocratic families that dominate the Senate are now plebeian. There are still a few of the old patrician clans. And Julius Caesar, the Julii, are one of these patricians. But 
in his case, the family has drifted away from politics. They haven't been able to win high office for generations. They're not that important. His father started to do well and then drops dead when comparatively young. And um, the family hasn't got a lot of money. Roman politics relied a lot on money. If you had money, you had the ability to advertise yourself. You could live in the most grand house possible nearest to the forum, nearest to the center of Rome. You kept on reminding people whenever you're, there was a family event, like a funeral, you'd have it as a big public affair. It would be grand. It would be spectacular. You'd have lots of people who owed you favors, had debts to you that you could make sure would vote for you, would turn up, would support you. Caesar's family isn't at the top of political life like that. So although he's an aristocrat, although the family is very ancient, so ancient indeed that they actually claim they're descended from the goddess Venus, and we don't quite know how developed the tradition was because we we read most of it from after Caesar Augustus and that time, the idea that Trojans and, and had led by Aeneas had fled from the sack of Troy and eventually ended up in Italy, that descendants of his would be Romulus and Remus who would found Rome. So Caesar has claiming a link to that mythical past of many centuries ago that we don't really know how much how far people actually believed any of this had actually happened but nevertheless it's it's distinguished it's famous but it's he's not the only aristocratic family that has claims of of this sort and as i say others are doing far better than him so although he's given a privileged upbringing he's by no means guaranteed a place at the center of Rome's public life at Roman politics mm. in the way that some people are, are almost born to be consul because of the family they come from, the name they have. And you see the same family names year after year cropping up mm. in the highest ranks of Rome, Rome's magistrates. Caesar's name isn't like that. But of course, we also have to remember, we know Caesar as the name of power, the name of the emperors. That's only because of Julius Caesar and particularly Augustus who claimed to be his son by adoption. It's just a family name when our Julius Caesar is forging his career. Being called a Caesar is like being called a Marcius Rex or a Metellus or uh, what Cornelius Scipio, whatever it might be. It isn't anything special. And sometimes it's easy to forget that because Caesar becomes the name where you'll have a Kaiser, a Tsar. It becomes a name of power associated with Rome, but associated just with empire, with power, with majesty all around. But when he starts out, it's just a family name like any other. Didn't he have a few ancestors who were consul at some point? So they didn't do greatly, but there wouldn't be Caesars, our Caesar, but he did have some family on the consul. There are, but in his particular line of the family, you've got to go back centuries Mm. to, to have it in common. Another cousins of his, who are also called Julius Caesar, have just started to do quite well Around about the time Caesar's born, a little bit before, they're starting to become famous as orators, as consuls. But it's hard to tell. The name is the same. But we do know, for instance, that that family of Julius Caesar's were registered in a different voting tribe. So maybe they're not quite as close. They had been close 100 years before. But by this time, maybe they're getting to be distant and distant cousins. But, but it probably helps. You know, Having people talk about a Caesar as a senator, as a consul, even if you're a different Caesar and you're not that closely related to them, voters in Rome seem to pick a name they know. There's a sense that, okay, we know what a Metellus will be like. They're generally okay, so let's vote for them again, rather than somebody we don't know. And when you start out your career as a young aristocrat, you haven't really had time to do very much. 
So you're dealing not so much with your own achievements, but things your family has done, things people with your name have done before. And the the hope is that, well, you'll be just as good as they were. So mm. Caesar doesn't really have that benefit or only at a sort of, in a, you know, at a distant way. Mm. Now, Caesar wanted, I think his mother or his family wanted him to begin to study as a priest and he very much began to take priest study. But it wasn't like what we think as a priest mm. of Catholicism or Protestantism, mm. where you can't, especially in Protestantism, sorry, Protestantism, you can't for. Sorry, I screwed it up here, but Catholicism <laughs> is what I was supposed mm. to say. And you can feel very careful around, but Caesar very much did so, and I'm sure we will get back to this. But mm. it wasn't it wasn't like Christianity or where you that kind of priesthood. So what was like studying the Roman priest as Caesar did intend to? Well, there are several types of priests, and ultimately, when he's a bit older, Caesar will become he'll be elected to the post of Pontifex Maximus, which is the same title the Pope now has Mm. as head of the Catholic Church based there in Rome. So some Roman priests are very political. You can be a pontiff, you can be an augur, you can be um, one of the ordinary flamenes, and you can have a political career. It's just something, it's, it's a sort of an extra thing you do sometimes. And because in every aspect of public life, the Romans take sacri- make sacrifices, they take the auspices, they try to ensure that everything the state does is within the will of the gods. So it's very political and it can be a political tool, you can manipulate it. But early on when he's young, Caesar becomes, there's doubt for some people over whether or not he actually takes up the post, but probably he did a very ancient priesthood called the Flamendialis that was a much more traditional, very restrictive post where he wasn't allowed to spend a night outside Rome. He wasn't allowed to see a corpse. He wasn't allowed to have um, certain things near him, eat certain things, see certain things. It essentially meant that he could not have a normal public career because he couldn't go off and do military service, lead an army, govern a province, any of these sorts of things. It's very hard to know. This is in the context of Rome's first civil wars that have begun in 88 BC when Caesar is only 12, where Marius and Sulla and their supporters turn to fighting when they're trying to get command of the Eastern War against Mithridates of Pontus, the modern-day northern Turkey, that area. And Rome is stormed by Roman legions for the first time ever, and then a couple more times within the course of a decade. So Caesar is connected to the Marian side of it. His aunt, Julia, is married to Marius, one of the leaders, but Marius himself dies uh, early on in this struggle. So we don't know to what extent this is Caesar being thought of as, oh, well, this is, he's not from that important a line, but let's give him this job. It might be useful to us sometimes. It's prestigious, but he's not going to do anything too spectacular because this restricts him. Or whether it's um, it's considered to be a favor because that's the you know the best he can hope for, mm. or they don't judge him to be able. They don't think he's healthy enough to be the man he'll turn out to be. So it's it's a very strange, restrictive thing, and it's a particularly difficult thing when this is he's not supposed to see dead bodies, and yet there's fighting in Rome. There are severed heads being nailed up on the speaker's mm. platform in the forum, bodies floating down the river Tiber as these civil wars escalate and get more and more bloody, more and more violent very, very quickly. So the post of Flamin Dialis is prestigious, but he loses it. That's partly why there's the debate over whether or not he was ever actually formally made this priest. But I, I think he probably was. Um, when Sulla wins the civil war, the last of these civil wars for the moment, and 
it seems to be, you can look at it either way. You can see it as a punishment in the sense that this is a prestigious post and it's been taken from him. Or you could actually see it as a favor to his family because it means, well, you can now have a normal career. Probably it's meant as a punishment because, again, we know what Julius Caesar is going to go on and do. Mm. But most people would not have expected that from somebody who's still a teenager who, you know, is from a family that's, that's yeah, it's, they're very ancient, but they're not really that important. So there's no reason to think that everyone was thinking, oh, yeah, Caesar is going to be this great man if we don't stop him now or don't restrict him now or that he needs the opportunity to go off and do this stuff. It's, it's again, he seems more important because of we know what's going to happen later on. Hmm. And, of course, the, like you said, Sulla wins the war, and he also, quite a lot of people, and Caesar among them. So how does Caesar, like you said, it wasn't that important at the time, so how does he come on this radar? Is it because of his mother's lineage that he changed? This man might become dangerous, so he has to go into hiding, which I'm sure we will talk about in a second. Well, the main thing is that he has been married to one of Mar- the daughter of one of Marius's main allies. Mm. So his wife is Cornelia, and her father fights against Sulla and is killed in the war. Now, Sulla purges the Roman Senate and the Roman aristocracy of all his opponents. So he kills a lot of them, but he also says any of their descendants, any of their family cannot hold political office. But he also expels anyone from the Senate that he doesn't trust. And he fills the Senate with men who've backed him during the Civil War, men who he thinks are loyal to him. Now, Caesar is supposedly brought before Sulla and told to divorce his wife, Cornelia. And he refuses to do that. And it's because of this refusal, whether it's simply the dictator has told you, this is a man who's awarded himself for being um, supreme power, something the Romans shouldn't install, give to any individual. And he's also killed large numbers of his enemies. You know, there's the famous story of him having a meeting of the Senate whilst his men are executing thousands of Samnite prisoners outside. So the Senate meets to the screams of these men dying. But this is someone who does not hide the fact that if you, he doesn't like you, he will kill you. Mm. He's a very sort of blunt, very brutal dictator. Compare his kind of an ancient Stalin in, in a way, sort of. He is. I mean, he's, he's, this is someone, you know, Sulla has it written on his tombstone, supposedly, that he's, you know, he's, there's no one who's a better friend than he is, but there's no one who's a worse enemy. Mm. So, you know, get on my right side, fine. But if you don't, if you try anything, I will kill you. And I just don't care. You know, it will not bother me at all. So he is a deeply chilling, a very un- unpleasant figure. Um, but you then people defend him saying, well, you know, it's a civil war. You have to win. You have to restore order. He does restore a measure of peace. Um, but the problem is he's then got to tell everybody, well, you have to follow the laws from now on. Don't do what I did and <laughs> raise an army and storm Rome twice, but do what you should do, what I say you should do. Um, so with Caesar, it might be, I mean, it, it's it's probably wrong to think of Caesar as a major um, figure as far as Sulla is concerned. Now, he's probably meeting lots of people, telling them to do things. It's quite noticeable notable that Pompey, who will become Caesar's ally and then eventually enemy, and who um, to whom Caesar will marry his daughter, Pompey is asked to divorce his wife by Sulla and does so. And Pompey is a far more important man who's raised a private army of three legions, fought in the Civil War. Caesar's still too young to have done all of that. And because he's Flamendialis, doesn't really have an open political role. So it is surprising. Um, but on the other hand... One of the reasons Caesar manages to escape, I mean, he goes off into to hiding. 
We're not sure whether he's formally put on one of these prescription lists, these death lists that are posted up in the forum by Sulla and his men, or whether he's simply everybody knows that Sulla's after him. Therefore, we might as well try and kill this man. Um, he is captured at one point, but he bribes the officer who's captured him to let him go. He catches malaria while he's hiding in the swamps and barely survives that. But he is his family, his mother, and the connections, the other Julius Caesars, Julius Caesares, who have backed Sulla. Again, the other side of the family with the same name, they are Sullen men, at least to a fair degree. So there are people who speak up for him. And in the end, he's not important enough to make it that vital that Sulla kills him. You know, he's still, is still just a very young man. Uh, he's not, you know, he's barely an adult. He hasn't done anything. He doesn't have a lot of money. He doesn't have a lot of connections. So Sulla pardons him. It's probably at this point he loses the priesthood. And from then on, he starts to have a normal career. He goes off to his first period of military service in Asia Minor, Western Turkey, as it would be today. So it's an episode that assumes more importance. And you have all these stories that, you know, people beg Sulla to let him go, to let Caesar pardon Caesar. And Sulla does so, but warns everybody, look, there's a lot of Mariuses in this Caesar. And you'll find all these stories that crop up in Plutarch, in Suetonius's life of people warning you against Julius Caesar, saying, you know, this man's really ambitious, he's going to go to the top, he's going to be a dictator, all this sort of thing. Most of that is probably invented, you know, later on. They know what's going to happen. And people start saying, oh, well, everybody could obviously see it. But it it, it wasn't really as, um, you know, he just wasn't that important for a long time in his career. We know he's going to be, but the Romans didn't at the time. So let's talk about his campaign in Syria and Turkey when when he's gone from hiding and joined the Roman army, and he's he's and because of, of course eventually he does get kidnapped by pirates, mm. and which I'm can I'm looking forward mm. to talking about <laughs> as well. <laughs> it's he goes off as most Romans do. There was a tradition that you were supposed to serve for either ten years in the army or in ten separate campaigns before you could stand for any political office at Rome. Now it's probably not enforced that rigidly by this time. But that's the idea. The Roman system of, of politics has always required you to do military service, then come back, do something political and civilian, then do some more military time and so on and so on. So Caesar's doing a fairly normal thing. He's a little bit old for this. He's a little bit late starting off, but he goes off as a junior officer of some sort, perhaps on the staff of a, a relative of a governor, campaigns in Asia Minor. But early on, he wins a, a medal, a decoration, the Corona Civica. The, the civic crown, which is the highest decoration for bravery that the Romans have. And traditionally, you got this by saving the life of a fellow citizen. And the old idea was that that citizen whose life you save would make you a wreath and present it to you to show that he owed his life to you. And you could then wear that on any public festival back home. So it, it's, you know, it's like the, the commemoration days where the veterans appear with their medals today. But perhaps more than that, because there were more festivals at Rome where you could be seen doing this. So this is clear, and it's it's surprising in a way that this is a man who hasn't had a he's had a rather sheltered life so far, but he shows a talent. At the beginning, he certainly shows a bravery, but also there's a, a a nice quote in Sallust of how the Romans, the aristocrats, used to compete with each other to excel, to be famous, to be brave, but they wanted an audience. 
know, it's all very well being brave, but you've got to have people seeing you do it and rewarding you and mm. talking about it. So he does that. He has that ability to capture the public eye. So it's it's a very good start to a career. But again, we have to remember there are lots of other Roman aristocrats out there doing much mm. the same thing. Whether or not they win the decoration, they're winning military glory. They're showing that they're brave. They're willing to fight and risk their life in service of the state. That's a, a very important idea for the Roman Republic is still a group of citizens. They're all part of the res publica, the, the public thing, the state. You know, it's, 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 so it's, it's that sense of duty, of belonging, and of serving the state in as distinguished a capacity as possible is, is a big deal for the Romans. So um, that's... It's a, it's again it's a good start for him and it, it's the beginning of a, a normal political career. He'll go back. He'll start appearing in the courts. He'll then go to study oratory in the Greek part of the, the eastern part of the Mediterranean because if you were, it was a sign of wealth if you could go and learn rhetoric in Greek, yeah. not in Latin. Everybody who's anybody in the Roman world is bilingual in both Greek as well as Latin, and you have to be fluent in the language. And you can see this later on. You know, we hear a lot about Cleopatra and all the languages she spoke, but no one actually claimed she spoke Latin. But it didn't matter because Mark Antony and Julius Caesar could speak to her fluently in Greek. It's, it's as natural for them as, um, as as their own language. So, But it also marked you out as a bit better than somebody who was trying to aspire to be a senator but didn't quite have the money. So Caesar is trying to live the life of one of the top aristocrats, even though it's probably a struggle to pay for all this. But during his studies in the East, and it again, we have to remember, you know, these days when a politician speaks to a large crowd, they do it with a microphone, with um, speakers. In the Roman world, you had to make your voice reach everybody in a crowd of thousands of people. So they're almost training like opera singers to project their voice, to get that power. So it's it's use of words, but it's also the sheer power of your voice, the delivery, that ability to mesmerize a crowd and this is something that people like caesar and cicero they have a lot of natural talent but they also train and practice and develop this and of course the trick it's like the you know the famous singer who can walk onto stage and sing make it look casual as if yeah i just do this but there's so many hours and days and years of practice to get to that that point but of course whilst he's out there he gets um kidnapped by pirates and held for ransom and that's again becomes one of the the great Julius Caesar stories. How, how, how fairly accurate have we think that this story is? Is it like mostly invented? The, the one that says like, now we played games and befriended this pirates and how it says, you're going to pay just 25, you know, that rolls for me, I'm worth twice, at least twice as much than this. <laughs> and how, how can we be sure that is, is this probably invented the story of the Caesar? It's probably true that he was captured by pirates um, and held for ransom. We know that piracy is a big, big problem in the Mediterranean at this time and that Romans are good captives that you can ransom because they've got wealthy friends. Um, so all of that's, that certainly happened. The problem is he tells the story, as you say, he's taken by the pirates and they say, well, we're going to ask, this is the, the amount we need paid to get to let you free and caesar says no that's not enough i'm worth far more than that i demand that you actually charge more for my release mm. and they laugh but they say okay that's fine and caesar's friends go off and to raise the money 
and he stays there with the pirates and he's supposed to charm them. I mean, this is the classic Caesar. This is Caesar as he likes to be remembered, as he likes to be thought of. And clearly, at least partly true, he was very charming. He was very good at convincing people. He had this charisma. You know, He had that sort of movie star quality. And the story is that he composes poetry, reads it out to the pirates. And if they don't appreciate, he tells them, oh, you're just a load of barbarians. You don't know any better. He joins in their sports, their games. He makes them laugh. He wins them over. But he keeps saying to them, I'm your prisoner now, but I'm going to come back and I'm going to crucify all of you. Hmm. And he gets away with it. They laugh. They don't think, well, (laughs) fine, we're not going to give you the chance. Let's just kill you now. The ransom comes back. He goes to the nearest Roman governor asks him for ships to, uh, well, no, actually, sorry, before that, he goes to the nearest towns that are allied to the Romans, raises a small fleet of warships, only little ones probably, and local crews. He's got no authority to do this. This is just a student. This is some kid who's suddenly just going around, but is so full of his, of his own confidence and that sense that when you see me, you see Rome. You know, I am going to be a senator. I am going to be a leader of the Roman Republic. Rome is what matters. So therefore... Be friends with me, be friends with Rome, because Rome's a very good friend. He does that. He then goes, leads them. He does capture the pirates. He does take them all prisoner. He goes to the governor and tells this man, look, I want these people executed because they're pirates. And that's, that's how we treat them. The governor doesn't do it. So Caesar, with no legal authority whatsoever, has them all crucified. But again, because he's a nice guy by the standards of the ancient world, their throats are cut first, so they're, they're, they're nailed to crosses. So they don't die the slow, agonizing death of crucifixion. They're, they're already dead, but Caesar keeps his word. Mm. So it's a great, great story and clearly was spread around Rome, told quickly, because again, it, it's, it's a good story. If you look at the detail, you have to ask one question, and that's if all of Caesar's friends have gone off to raise the money, who is telling this story? Because mm. the pirates are dead. So it's either Caesar or it's his slaves and close household who are still with him. So you have to wonder. It's, it's a striking thing in the Gallic commentaries where he talks about his, his campaigns in Gaul later on. He's very, very modest about what he actually does. So you get stories. You will find modern commentators will say you know, there's a story in, of a battle in 57 BC where he takes a shield from a man at the rear and pushes his way to the front. Now, a lot of scholars today, and I've heard people write this, I've heard them say it on TV, this sort of thing will say, this shows that Caesar was willing to fight in the front ranks, sword in hand, you know, when the things got tough. But Caesar doesn't actually say that. All he says is he goes to the front and he encourages the men and he gives orders. He changes their formation. He speaks to the centurions by name, the soldiers individually. The rest of the heroism is imagined because he's sort of, he's, He's modest about it. You know, he's sort of saying, well, I just did this and it all turned around and we win the battle. And I do wonder how much of this this pirate story is an early example of that. Caesar drops some hints. He actually tells it in a very modest way and he lets people imagine this heroism. And as the stories go, he doesn't deny them. Because we know that in contrast, people like Pompey had histories written about their campaigns that talk about him killing enemy leaders, you know, uh, with his own spear, with his own sword, leading cavalry charges, the stuff that Caesar just lets you imagine. You, you, you create your own heroic Caesar. So I, I wonder if that's going on early on. It's clearly, it's, it's again, Caesar has to compete with lots of other aristocrats who want the same political offices, want the fame that he craves. And he has to try and stand out. He has to be talked about. He has to be noticed. And he doesn't have the money to spend early on to advertise himself. So 
the more notorious he can be, the more he's he's just he's talked about because it's a good story, then the better that is for him. And the, the same is probably true of his womanizing, you know, all these affairs he has with other people's wives. It's gossip and it's negative, but it means at least people know who he is. Hmm. So, of course, let's talk about him getting back to Rome. And he, he isn't a very wealthy man at the moment, which we talked about early on. Mm. But he, and as if you wanted to be a politician, as I'm sure you know, you need at least 400,000 in in your bank account. Mm. Not that I have to use one metaphor there, but, you know, yeah. it does take a lot of that to become a senator. And a lot of people would lose their, you know, get broke because of the deaths and never recover from senatorial elections, which they would lose. A lot of, a lot of them would. But and let's talk about his taking up debt and him becoming a senator. And mm. do we know if he ever paid them back or did he pay them back that kind of mafia style in favors later, later on? It's, it's a little bit like that. I mean, it's because Rome works on loans of money but also trading in favors you know you vote for me you vote for my friend you you when you're a juror in the court or the magistrate presiding over a court you you know you're you're friendly to my friends and unfriendly to my enemies so that's the i mean caesar starts by doing all the things other people are doing and time and again year after year the senate keeps on passing new laws restricting the amount that people could spend on election campaigns because the problem is if one year people spend a million silver coins, by the next year you've got to spend one and a half million to do better than they've done to stand out. So it keeps on getting more and more expensive to succeed because everybody's trying to outdo everyone else. It's basically like the modern Olympics openings and that they keep getting better yeah. and better for every year because they want to top the previous Olympic opening. Uh, and that's the thing. And Rome, you know, the Roman aristocracy, it's a culture of being the best, being the greatest. So, you know, it's all very well winning a triumph and a war, but you've got to win a bigger and better one and have a more spectacular procession, mm-hmm. as you say, than the one last time. Otherwise, people remember that one, not yours. So Caesar is doing all of this and he borrows money and spends so that people notice him. And he gets, you know, he's very prominent in the courts. So he, people notice him. It's really a gamble because he keeps on borrowing more. Each time he succeeds, he then borrows even more money to try and succeed for the next most senior post and the next most senior post. And in the late 60s, just before he's due to go to Spain as governor, um, several people are about to ask for their money back because they're gambling on the fact that he will keep on succeeding. If at any point he fails, he's finished because he's only going to be able to repay debts if he gets a big command where he can earn a lot of money in the provinces, hopefully fighting a war and plundering the enemy. You know, it's, it's really as, as blunt and brutal as that. Um, and he will go to Gaul hugely in debt and he'll come back one of the wealthiest people in the state. By that time, people are being paid back. And other people like Cicero that have had a, you know, an ambiguous, a difficult relationship with Caesar take money from him by this time because they all need money to keep on promoting their own careers and to live at the status in the way that a senator is expected to live. And again, it's, it's like you're saying about the Olympic ceremonies, the wealthier one senator gets, the more everyone else tries to keep up. They try to show off in the same way. They try to give the same sort of entertainments, live in as grand a house, as grand a villa, have this amount of artwork they can display, give these things to the Roman people. So it's always getting more and more expensive. 
And with Caesar, it's this, it is this gamble. People are investing in him. It's a little bit buying on a stock market, stocks and shares in a company and saying, well, I think this will go up. I think this value will increase, but it could just go like that. And if Caesar had failed in any of these election campaigns, if he'd gone off on a, on, um, to his province and got killed, as people did, that's it. It's gone. You have the famous, again, it may be a story, but it does illustrate the point that when he stands for election to the post of Pontifex Maximus, this senior priesthood that's a very political office at Rome, and he's up against older senators, men with better reputations, men with a lot more money, so he borrows even more. Going off to the, the voting that day, he's supposed to say to his mother as he leaves the house that I'm either coming back as a victor or I'm not coming home. Because there's a basic truth. Once he loses, everyone's going to say, well, I want my money back. And it's like a, a run on a bank now. You know, the, These banks that have collapsed in America in recent months. Once people think that money's going to be lost, everyone's rushing to pull their money out first mm. so they don't lose out and somebody else does. And once that happens to you, once you lose that belief that, yes, you will succeed, yes, you will be able to pay me back eventually. So it is a big, big gamble at every stage. And it's a gamble on Caesar's part, but everybody else's as well. A lot of his money comes from Crassus, who's a very shrewd investor. Mm. And uh, he trades in favors. You know, he's always appearing in court on behalf of people. Um, he's someone that doesn't never gets prosecuted himself because everyone's frightened of him. Everybody owes him either a favor or money or both, pretty much. So I do love his fireman's fireman's squad. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I mean that's again. He's he's someone who's made his money really with supporting Sulla, and he's fought well then. But then he he buys up a lot of Rome, and he, he as as you mentioned, he has this slave fire brigade. He trains slaves to put out fires, which in the Roman context, is less about hoses and water, and it's more about knocking down buildings in the path of the fire so that you create a break, the fire can't spread beyond it. So Crassus goes to buildings in the path of a fire, goes to their owners and say, I'll buy this at a, a really cheap price, because look, you're going to lose it, There's because no, you don't have insurance in the modern sense. So they sell quickly, then he brings in his fire brigade, either saves the building or he's also got engineers that he owns who will build it and then he starts to rent out the properties. So, you know, he's a very shrewd, very ruthless capitalist businessman, really. That's, um, but he uses his money well. Pompey is probably richer than Crassus, but he doesn't have again, quite the, the same skill. A, again, a little bit comparison is basically the ancient world's Trump in that sense. In a sense, I mean, but he's probably, Crassus works behind the scenes more. You know, he's less visible, whereas, you know, Trump is more, more prominent with the, the, the television aspect of his career and that sort of celebrity. I mean, it probably it, would have been if he, if they had TV at the time. He probably would have said one ancient equivalent of The Apprentice somehow. The, the, the Romans would have loved it. I mean, it's, there's a nice story about um, Livius Drusus, the politicians whose murder prompted the, the social war, the rebellion of Rome's allies, where he's having a, his house built and the architect comes to him and apologizes and says, well, look, I'm sorry, but people are going to be able to see in in some places. I have to put some windows in for the light. And Drusus is supposed to tell him, I wish you could build me a house where everybody could see what I'm doing all the time. Mm. You know, it, it is, it's very theatrical. The way Roman politics works, they want to be seen. As I say, it's like Caesar with his, his affairs with married women. Better to be talked about than people to forget who you are. So even if it's gossip, and even if it's sort of negative in some respects, at least you're famous. 
And it is this sort of weird reality television sort of production mm. where they're, they're all showing off all the time. And remember that all the Senate know each other and they're dining with each other. They're, they're marrying each other's sisters and daughters and you know, they're all closely related and they're watching very closely. And it's, it's tough if you're the same age as Julius Caesar. You know, his big rival is, is Bibulus, with whom he's um, Edile, he's Praetor, he's Consul. And, you know, they um, they have the joke that's reported that the consulship is the consulship not of Caesar and Bibulus, but of Julius and Caesar, because Caesar is flamboyant. Caesar is a classic sort of Hollywood style showman. You know, when he puts on games, he doesn't just spend money, but he he does it in a way the crowd likes, whereas Pompey spends loads of money. But he puts elephants into the arena to be killed by hunters and the crowd doesn't like it. They feel sorry for the elephants. He's misjudged it. It's it's like the the Hollywood blockbuster, this movie that you spend all the money you can um, find, you put all the stars in, and it's still a flop because it's a terrible movie, or people just don't like it. Caesar is one of those people who can use his money really well. Crassus in another way, but yes, it, it's it, there is in a sense that these are you are marketing yourself. Remember, there's no political parties when you stand for election. You're not saying this is what I want to do. I want to bring in a law on this. I want to do that. I want to do that. What you say is that I am a very able, good person, and I will lead Rome really well. Whatever happens, I'll be good. So it's, it really is personality-based in the way that, that aspects of American politics in particular can be, but you know, elsewhere, but openly so. We sort of pretend, oh, well, you're, you know, you're head of this party, and that party believes in these particular way of doing things. For the Romans, there aren't parties. It's all about, it's me, it's my personality, it's my face, it's my voice, it's my character. That's what you choose. And it's and you advertise yourself all the time to remind voters that that's the name you should write on the, the, the ballot when they cast it. And you, we also have to remember that they didn't make money in the sense that modern mm. politicians do on politics or state funds. They mm. rather lost money, especially if you were ever responsible for games, public games. You had to spend perhaps millions yearly in well, it, these games. But again, you, the stories about Caesar show how clever he was about it because he, he used to go around the gladiatorial fights and he bought up the men who lost rather than letting them be, be killed or executed, but then had his own gladiatorial school and intensively trained them. So by the time they reappeared, they were a lot better. Mm. Um, and it's things like that. So he's, he is spending a lot and far more than he can afford, but he's borrowing and people see that they think he is the man who is going to be the man of the future. He will succeed. He will um, be able to pay them back because the only time you really make a profit is when you go out to govern a province. And there's even you know, one of Catullus' um, his poems. He talks about meeting a friend who's just come back from Bithynia. And the first question they ask him is, well, how much money did you make? Mm. Uh, that's the assumption. You go out and many of the Roman politicians are utterly shameless to the extent to which how corrupt they are and how they exploit the population of the province, do things that are not for the good of the Roman Republic because they can create rebellions, create wars, simply because they want their money whilst they're in charge and they hope somebody else will deal with the problems they cause because another governor will have arrived. So Caesar doesn't really even, he must make some money in Spain, but probably nothing compared to the, his, the size of his debts. But Gaul, he's supposed to have enslaved perhaps a million people. Mm. And whilst there's also a story that he killed a million, 
who would know you know they're not going to go around counting the dead as precisely as that but once somebody becomes a slave then there are record books you know this is all the romans were very fond of their account books their records this so there's a fair chance that figure is close to the truth so you flood the market with cheap slaves from gaul but because there are so many of them you still make a huge profit and you're very lavish with giving out gifts to your soldiers to anyone who'll support you you know people are able to build monuments in rome because of money caesar's given them and when he starts building his own forum um in rome which which begins he begins buying up land and the project starts whilst he's still in gaul that's great in that the roman people will get this new spectacular looking complex in the middle of their city but also remember this lots of people get jobs to work on that whether they're the builders whether they're the architects whether they're people supplying the materials so you're basically you're spending this money but you're getting lots of favor back from it but that's really the only time up until then as you say you don't earn a salary you're not paid to be consul or praetor or edile you're just expected to do it out of duty to the state, which is why the Senate says, well, you have to be rich. You have to be you know, important to be a senator because otherwise you'd end up, you'd be poor. You wouldn't be able to do this. So let's not talk about this governing time as a governor, because as, you know, it wasn't quite a while until after you were consul or pontifex. You can govern, I think, in quite a few, few years after you were in, in the Senate. So you, the best way, like you said, it was going to be a governor. But how about, how many legions does it bring with him to govern when when he is a governor? And how when does he decide that hey, maybe Gaul could be a good conquest? <laughs> well, it's interesting because he's first voted the provinces of Cisalpine Gaul, which mm. is the bit of northern Italy just south of the Alps, and Illyria, which is pushing into Croatia, the former Yugoslavia, all that area. And there is a reasonable chance that Caesar actually didn't plan was in Gaul, but planned a campaign towards the Danube and perhaps against the Dacians who have a strong king, Borobista, at this period. And maybe that's the way he's thinking and he's looking because he really wants, he wants a war. He doesn't care you know, who the enemy is as long as there's someone he can defeat, someone he can plunder, or at least someone who will submit to him and allow him to win glory. But then the governor of Transalpine Gaul, which is the area north of the Alps, modern-day Provence in France, dies and that province is added to caesar's command some people have argued recently or he expected this to happen anyway and he always thought in terms of gaul i i don't think so i think it's more an opportunity that that comes along he's given that extra province in total that just gives him four legions which is you know a decent sized army each legion's maybe four to five thousand men so with some allied troops you've got 20 25,000, maybe thirty thousand. He starts from the beginning, he raises two new units and he'll double the size of that army. He'll end up with, you know, 12, 13. It, the precise number varies depending on what you count as a legion because he raises some troops that only become a legion later on, some from the province, like the, the later become Fifth Alaudi because they're recruited from non-citizens from Gaul originally. Um, but his army will expand. It'll be at least three times bigger than the army he, he takes over at the start by the end of his campaigns. But the Helvetii from what's now Switzerland migrate, try and cross through his province. He defeats them. They then move through um, the territory of allied tribes who complain to Caesar, and that's his pretext. He goes in to defend friends of the Roman people against another tribe who are attacking them, and he very ruthlessly fights the Helvetii, massacres them, sends the rest home. And then another tribe 
appeals to his allies who appeal to him to say there's a German warlord called Ariovistus who's overrun our territory, came as our um, mercenary, our hired help. He's taken over instead. So um, he goes and fights him. And the story of the Gallic Wars, as Caesar tells it, is somebody appeals for help, a friend of the Roman people, an ally of the Roman people. Therefore, he must go further away from his province to fight new enemies because that's defending that's all in the interest of the roman republic because if we don't protect our allies why should they stay our allies mm. so he does this and he that this will allow him to bridge the river rhine and cross into germany he'll come to britain twice you know which is a long way away from his responsibility of southern what's now southern france southern gaul um so he he exploits it nothing that he does is by roman standards wrong or um, out of the ordinary in terms of supporting your allies, picking fights, defending them. But it's the degree to which he does. He does far more of it, far more ambitiously than most other people have done, with the exception of the likes of Pompey and perhaps mm. Lucullus in the East in recent years. Um, he's criticized by Cato, his, you know, one of his bitterest enemies, for breaking a truce um, and attacking German tribesmen while he's negotiating with them. And that's a breach of Rome's fides. It's it's faithfulness. So, you know, if we do that, well, nobody will negotiate with us because they won't trust us. But that comes to nothing. But that's really the only... Nobody else criticizes what he's done or the way he does it. Um, It's just the scale of it all staggers people. Because again... You know, he's done these little spectacular things like the pirates. He's, you know, he's been awarded this this decoration early on. He's been quite aggressive in Spain. But no one really prepared people for Caesar taking an army, making it bigger and bigger, and turning it into this incredibly efficient fighting force, and just winning battle after battle, campaign after campaign, um, and keeping on getting away with it. Even when things are desperate, he somehow finds a way out. And he also writes about it to tell people, look at all the great things we're doing. And what's significant in his commentaries is that, although he writes for himself in the third person, it is Caesar did this, the general did this, he did this. The Roman soldiers are nostri. That's our men. That's us. You know, he's telling everybody, we're the, we are the Romans. We're doing this. We're the guys who are doing this. We're beating everybody. We're defeating anything that even nature can throw against us. You know, we can bridge one of the biggest rivers in the world. We can cross the Britain that's on the edge of reality. You know, all of this. So it's sometimes people read the Latin and think, oh, this is a bit ponderous. But for a Roman audience, this was incredibly exciting. It's stories being told within months of it happening. Look at all the great stuff we're doing. And this Caesar, he's doing it for Rome, for you. Mm. You're all sharing in this. So, so then I do want to go back a little bit because mm. there's something that we did forgot to talk about, and that is rather not maybe the a, a trial with Tarsus, Pompey, and of course Caesar that will become important much a little bit later than the, how we and because you know that's this is kind of a little bit basis as well for Pompey turning later against Caesar. So I want to talk about the this trial here with Tarsus. Um, Caesar and Pompey. It's one of those incidents that because there's later a formal triumvirate between Octavian or yet the young Caesar, as he'll call himself, Mark Antony and Lepidus, that is, they, 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 they pass a law to confirm their powers, a board of three. That's official. The arrangement between Caesar, Crassus and Pompey is informal. It's private. It takes a while before people realize it's happened. 
But it's one of those things. The Roman Republic works on the principle that no one person or one group should get permanent supreme power. And the way they achieve this is that when people get more and more distinguished, then everybody else sort of joins against them to try and make sure they don't get too much power. So Pompey has been sent out to the East and done great things and campaigned there with great success, but has real trouble getting the Senate to acknowledge and formally accept the decisions he's made, even though they're clearly very good decisions for the good of the Roman Republic, because many of his administrative arrangements will still be enforced centuries later once they're passed. But he's blocked because Pompey's a, a very gifted soldier, but he's not so experienced as a politician. Crassus is the great dealmaker in the Roman Senate, but also people don't want to upset him, but they're also they're worried that he's too powerful. So, but he, he was not a very competent general again. Well, that's that's an interesting question. That that's slightly different. He's he's fought well in the civil war, but that's not very honourable. He's fought well against Spartacus and the slave army in the seventies. He's done what was really a dirty job by Roman standards. You know, he has Spartacus has defeated a succession of Roman armies, virtually wiped them out. And he's but, terrified but doesn't everybody. Pompey take hmm. kind of credit for this Spartacus affair? There's kind of tension as well between there Crassus is. There, and there, Pompey. Pompey has this now. Pompey, it's true if you look at a lot of very successful commanders in military history, they often have huge egos. And they never seem to accept that anybody else can get anything right. It's all about them, the way they tell the story. Hmm. And you can see that with, you know... A, in the 19th, 20th century. It's, it's the way they bicker because you have to have that immense confidence in yourself to do these things, to make these decisions that most of us would, you know, we wouldn't be able to do. We'd be terrified of doing this, the responsibility. They push past that because they're convinced they're great. Mm. It does mean they're not very good at acknowledging others. Now, Pompey has this habit of stealing other people's glory. He doesn't need to because he's got loads that he has rightfully earned himself. But after Crassus has defeated and killed Spartacus and most of the slaves, a small group of slaves are fleeing. Pompey runs into them, defeats them, so claims that he actually finished the war. And Crassus doesn't like it for that. There was also there was bad blood between them because when they, although they both fought for Sulla, Crassus rather felt that Pompey got more credit that Crassus should have got. So there's jealousy there. When all said and done, they just don't like each other. You know, there there are. You, all of us will find in life you can see with there are some people you know you can see the natural friends others you just don't mm. don't get on with it's there it's worse because they're competitors so these two men have separately been blocked by the senate from getting the things they want caesar comes along and he knows that there are rivals in the senate that don't want him to succeed because they they see him as a as a risk taker you know he's got all these debts they they see him as ambitious And they know as well that when he's around, everybody else looks less impressive. So Cato is Caesar's bitterest enemy, partly for ideological reasons, but also because if Cato's going to be famous, he needs to defeat a rival. And the best rival, the most flamboyant rival to take out is Caesar. And then it doesn't help that Caesar is having an affair with your sister mm. and that um, Bibulus is your son-in-law, who is constantly being outshone by Caesar because every time he holds a post Caesar's always there and in a crowd you know he's like the movie star that everyone notices they don't mention all they don't notice all the others standing next to them and that's you know that annoys them so you've got all of that Caesar Crassus and Pompey come together quite possibly at Caesar's initiative he's the one who starts this and says look if we group together 
we can do what we want because you can make me consul. With your backing, I'm bound to win. And then when I'm consul, I can pass the laws that each of you wants. And I can also get what I want as well and get through legislation that I need. So it's it's a secret arrangement. And these things happen in Roman politics, but not usually with people so powerful. But again, Caesar is the junior partner. Crassus and Pompey are the big men in the Senate already. But Caesar is the one who can actually be consul, so therefore can bring laws to the, the the people and get them passed and actually make things happen, which you can't do when you're just a senior senator. You can advise them, you can make speeches, but you can't actually do anything. So this is the triumvirate, but it becomes their opponents are so determined to block them that it's it's a bit like gamblers where they keep on raising the stakes in a game. They each think the other side will back down. So Cato tries to stop Caesar by every possible um, technicality he can think of. And and you have the classic case, he, Caesar produces this land law, which involves taking publicly owned land and giving it to former soldiers of Pompey, but also people in Rome who have no work, have no jobs. Instead of giving them free grain every month, then give them a farm somewhere. They can take their family, they can support their family. They're no longer dependent on the state. They can actually become full citizens again, whose sons can serve in the army and isn't that good for everyone. And you have the comment that um, one of Caesar's opponents says, looking through this law, I see nothing bad in this law. The only thing I don't like is the man proposing it and therefore I'll block it. So they block it, but Caesar and his allies won't take no for an answer. So they escalate. You end up with rioting, you know, um, manure being heaped over, um, Bibulus and others, uh, some violence, some fatalities, more people injured. It escalates as each side keeps trying to block the other. And that's Caesar's weakness because he knows that people will want to prosecute him about this. They can try and say that. So it, the same tendency to try and block someone and end their career and not think that, well, if, if, we put them, if we back them into a corner, then they're going to be desperate, but they'll give in. Instead, they don't. Romans, Roman aristocrats don't easily give in. They, the culture is very much to be stubborn and to keep on fighting. It's the reason why they've won wars against Hannibal and people like that, mm. because they just won't give in. But when it comes to a civil war, the inability to negotiate, to compromise, if you just won't give in, you have to win and you'd rather die than lose, it means the civil wars tend to be particularly violent and vicious. And, I would, and of course, Caesar do marry his daughter, Julia, to Pompey, which actually she eventually dies, and this, I believe, is when this, their alliance started to fall out. Well, there's, there are two deaths that are critical. And one is Julia, as you say. And, and bear in mind, you know, Pompey is older than Julius Caesar. We don't quite know when Julia was born, so we can't be precise. But she is 30 or more years younger than Pompey. But as far as we can tell, the marriage actually seems very successful. And it, it is more than simply a political marriage. Um, you know, perhaps because Julia had the charm of Caesar and Pompey, Pompey loved to be loved. You know, if people gave him attention, he hated it when anyone was nasty to him. But if you were nice to him, then he was all over you. He was that sort of personality. So uh, he probably, you know, it seems to be a happy marriage, but the she dies in childbirth. The child dies within a few days. So that's one big connection. 
And then when Pompey looks for a new wife, as Roman politicians does, even though Julius Caesar is supposed to go through his family trying to find any sort of woman of the right sort of age that he can he can marry off to Pompey, um, he chooses someone else. Now, it's a good marriage as far as Pompey's concerned, but it does weaken the link with Caesar. And then the other death is that of Crassus, who um, Pompey and Crassus become consuls again for the second time. And Pompey votes himself a big command of all the Spanish provinces, but he, he just moves to sort of outside the formal boundary of Rome, but he never goes to Spain. Whereas Crassus goes off to Syria and leads an expedition into Parthia. And he fights the Battle of Carhai, which he loses in the aftermath. He retreats. The Parthians chase him down. Negotiating with them, he is killed. So suddenly the other big man has gone. So the link, the personal link, the Julia, the daughter who may be kept her father and her husband closer together, she could be the peacemaker between them, has gone. And Crassus, the big money man, the balancing factor. Now, if there are two people, rivalry is natural. Three, one is always worried that the other two will, will join together against him. So it's easier to try and keep an uneasy peace. And there is a, a comment from the poet Lucan, who wrote under Nero much later, um, where he talks about the civil war. And he says that you know the root of it is this, that Pompey would not tolerate an equal and Caesar wouldn't accept a superior. And there's a lot of truth in that. In the end, the way Pompey behaves, it's saying to Caesar in the build-up of the Civil War, trust me and I will protect you. Whereas, but I'm not going to treat you as an equal. That means that I'm the big man. You've got to accept that and then I'll look after you. Whereas Caesar is working on the basis that, look, I've won all these victories. I've fought these campaigns that are every bit as spectacular as anything you've ever done. I've got all this money. I've got all this prestige. Just accept me as an equal, and we can be jointly the most prominent men in the Roman state. And Caesar won't accept anything less than that, whereas Pompey won't accept that. He's got to be top. Especially, he could just about cope with Crassus's arrival because Crassus doesn't have his charisma, doesn't have his military reputation. But Caesar has got all of those things. And Pompey, who's now into late middle age, you know, he's starting to feel his years, doesn't, it's one of these people who doesn't want to be old, um, then it's, it's much harder to have the new young hero coming along and somebody supplanting you. You know, you, you see it so often with, you know, with athletes, with sportsmen, where they're, they're the famous one, but it gets to the end of their career and somebody else is coming along. They don't always like that newcomer because it, it's, it's just that human thing. You know, Pompey in particular like any Roman, but I think particularly as his personality, he loved the attention. He loved the fame. He loved being Rome's greatest man, Rome's greatest commander. And he didn't want to move from that position, just like Marius before him. And of course, I want to draw back to what the part about this, which I think, and like you said, we will be talking late, important during the Civil War, why they fight against each other in the first place. And I felt that this was important going back to, but let's go back to Spain a bit, because it does take quite a long time to conquer Spain, 10 years, I think. And but before we go to the towards mm -hmm. the end of the Trans Spanish campaign, sorry, Gallic campaign, campaign yeah. I, I want to talk about why, well, because it was propaganda for Caesar mm -hmm. to write. The Gallic War. So let's talk a little bit about why he chose to write the Gallic War. Why? Because there was a reason as well why he was chose to write himself in third person. I think because he could. You know, Caesar has a way with words. You know, he is a great orator. Even Cicero, you know, says these are a remarkable works of literature. And Cicero, you know, doesn't particularly like Caesar, but nevertheless, um, he says that. And 
they are. You know, they, this is why Caesar was Caesar's um, commentaries were so often taught in schools because they offer this apparently very simple, very plain Latin, but it carries you along. And um, you know, Caesar is supposed to have said that a good orator, a good writer, avoids a difficult word or expression, just like somebody steering a ship avoids a rock. It's it's simple. It's not. Whereas there is there was a tradition of Roman literature to make things very ornate, very flamboyant, very complicated, but quite hard to follow and read. I think Caesar realizes that yes, he can win this campaign, but unless people are talking about it, then it's going to be hard to come home. Now Pompey had taken historians with him on his campaigns, and they then wrote the stories for him because he didn't have that way with words. He didn't have that ability. So Caesar's, again, using something he's good at. And he, it's, you know, you have stories, whether it's consciously um, uh, copying, you know, you have, you have stories of Napoleon as well, being able to dictate to several scribes at the same time, because he's thinking so fast, he can remember, this is that letter, this is this book, this is that. Um, you know, Napoleon did the same thing. There aren't many of us who could actually keep the head clear and not get confused. Caesar had that ability. He's filling his months. Another thing to remember is that apart from the commentaries, he's writing letter after letter back to Rome. In ancient times, there was a collection of letters written by Caesar to Cicero and Cicero back that had been lost. It hasn't survived, um, that collection. We don't know how extensive it was, but it was there. But clearly, you know, Cicero talks about the news coming from Gaul. Caesar is writing, all the commanders are writing. So it's important to advertise what they're doing and also to keep an eye on things in Rome to still be an influence, to be able to do favors for people. Okay, you know, you're standing for election. I'll help you with some money or I've got some friends who they'll support you. They'll make it clear. So Caesar is trying to be still part of that political life whilst he's fighting, but also he wants the A striking thing about his accounts is the true heroes of the commentaries are Caesar himself, obviously, though in this this third-person dispassionate sense. But the Roman soldiers are important, but the people who get named, the people who are really singled out, are not the senatorial officers, though some of them are complimented. It's the centurions. It's the sort of the middle-ranking officers of the Roman army, but the people who are or at least their families, are the aristocrats of the local towns of Italy. They're people whose vote matters at Rome, who've got the wealth to travel to vote, but also vote in the way the Roman system is structured. Their vote counts for more. They get to vote first. You need to win fewer of them over to win that particular voting group, that century. Hmm. And it's the centurions who are the heroes. You know, occasionally they're too brave. They get killed because they, or there's a, a near disaster because they, they attack too boldly. But otherwise, they're men who fight until they take so many wounds that they they collapse, but only then, who um, charge out. There's a a case where two jump over the rampart of a besieged camp to kill Gauls, to show the raw recruits that, you know, the Gauls aren't that frightening. And they have this competition. How many enemies can they kill? Because they're competing for valor. These people are the real heroes. So we have to remember, we always think of just the Senate and the elite, but there are more people in Italy who matter. And this class to a very large extent, will support Julius Caesar. So he's, it's, it's all for a political purpose, as well as probably reflecting reality. I mean, these are you know, important figures within the Roman army. But he tells you, he doesn't fill the Gallic commentaries with stories of long-haired, wild-looking Gauls covered in tattoos, charging through the mist. It's quite plain. But again, he allows your imagination to work, and he throws these numbers at you. And he throws these achievements and just makes it clear. 
the Gallic Wars, like the the commentaries on the Civil War, they have lots of times where Caesar makes a mistake or acts on the basis of something that proves to be wrong. But he always finds a way out. The combination of Caesar and his men, his soldiers and his officers, is unbeatable because they won't give in and they always work out a way to win, no matter what the odds are against them. Whether it's at Elysia, the big culmination of the rebellion in 52 BC, where Caesar besieges the Gallic army of Vercingetorix at the top of a hill, builds a line of fortifications to fence them in. Then when an army of Gauls comes to rescue Vercingetorix, Caesar and his men build another line of fortifications facing outwards to keep them out. So they're in the middle and the Gauls are on either side of them. And archaeology has confirmed that you know his account is very, very accurate. It's, it's, it's simplified, but beyond that, it's pretty much what you find there on the ground now as they've excavated. So you know they do these things, and it is quite staggering. It's that confidence that no matter what happens, Caesar never loses his nerve. He always works out how to win, and he always does win in the end. Mm-hmm. So things might go badly at times, but this is a story of victory after victory, and it's really good, dramatic, thrilling stuff. Something I did I read the Gallic War a while ago. Don't twist me on it though, but mm. but I do remember him. He has knowledge that he did have a few defeats in in the Gallic War as well. That they actually doesn't ignore his defeats as well. He does write about them too. I mean, he obviously had to be careful that, that Caesar tells the story in a way that is flattering, is favorable to Caesar, mm. but he couldn't invent because his commanders are writing back all the time to their friends in Rome and some particularly senators, come out, serve a year or so with Caesar, a season or so, then go back home. So Caesar's isn't, it's the only voice we have about these campaigns, but it wasn't the only voice at the time. And sometimes in Cicero, you hear rumors of what's going on in Gaul that prove to be false. So, you know, one of the main disasters is the destruction of a legion and a half in the winter of 54, 53 BC. Caesar isn't present for that. And he sort of passes the buck onto the, the commanders on the spot, or one of them in particular. But nevertheless, by Roman standards, he's the army commander. His army's been defeated, even if he wasn't there. And even if someone's made bad decisions, it's Caesar's fault because he appointed that man who then made those bad decisions. And then you have Gogovia, which he explains because his, his legions get too excited and they attack city walls when they haven't properly prepared. Again, the centurions are too brave for their own good. And one of them then dies fighting and Caesar gives him these heroic last words. You know, he's got up onto the rampart. He's fighting off Gauls. He lets his men escape. He covers the retreat, but he stays there fighting to sort of make amends to Caesar. You know, I've let Caesar down because I didn't obey orders. I attacked too boldly when I shouldn't have done, but, you know, I'll die for it. I'm going to make it. So even that is turned into something heroic. But it's one of those, it's it's interesting and frustrating. Cicero mentions on one occasion that he's had a letter from his brother Quintus, who serves as one of Caesar's senior subordinates. He serves as a legatus. And this is sent by Quintus Cicero while Quintus Cicero is in Britain in the summer of 54 BC. Now, the Romans are only in Britain for a few months this time. And yet the postal system is working well enough that Quintus Cicero can write a letter from Britain and it reaches his brother in Rome within a matter of weeks. It doesn't take that long. What's really annoying about it all is that he says, oh, I've had this letter from Quintus, but moving on from that, I'm not going to talk about that. I'm going to talk about the gossip of Rome. Mm. Wouldn't it have been lovely to have had passing on from Quintus? Well, this is what Quintus says they've actually been doing in the last few weeks. Mm. This is what Britain's like. This is what these people are like to fight. That would be fascinating, but it's it doesn't survive. So it's but it gives you an idea of just how much 
as I say, Caesar's wasn't the only voice at the time telling the story of the wars in Gaul. So he couldn't just make stuff up. He had to stick pretty closely to the facts, but then tell them in a way that makes sure that everybody believes what he wants them to believe. So it's, it's, it's a lot more subtle than just sort of, you know, simple propaganda. Yeah, I'm great. We win all the time. Aren't I marvelous? He has to admit things and he does admit mistakes. And, you know, people have said, well, some of his best moments are when he gets himself out of a mess that his mistakes have created. But again, the point is, as far as the Romans are concerned, winning is what counts. You know, you keep going until you win. And that's what Caesar does again and again and again. Then let's talk about the final campaign that they mentioned the two fortresses that they built and the versus Vercingetorix and the final defeat of Gaul. This is the, the big rebellion. And one of the striking things that this, this starts in the winter of 53 to 52 BC is that people like Vercingetorix, Caesar doesn't mention him until he appears at this point. The later historian Cassius Dio, who wrote in the second, uh, sorry, third century AD, so 250 plus years after the events, claims that Vercingetorix had been a favorite of Caesar's and that Caesar had actually promoted his career. And there are tribes that join the rebellion because when Caesar arrives in Gaul, just as happens where the Romans arrive anywhere, lots of people don't fight them. Instead, they think the people I really hate, the really dangerous rivals are people within my tribe who want to be kings or want to um, be supreme, or that tribe that's been our neighbors for generations that's always attacked us and raided us. Maybe we can get the Romans to help us fight them. And if I make friends with Caesar and the Romans quickly, then my career will benefit. So people, tribes like the Aedui have done this from the start. They're long-term allies of the Romans, but they've, they've done very well out of being friends to Caesar. They've got new territory, new subordinate allies of themselves. However, Caesar's now been in Gaul for years, and people are starting to realize, okay, well, it was good for us at the start, but wouldn't it be even better now if the Romans went away? Because if they stay, then the Romans are dominant, not us. So this is, it's a pattern you get in a lot of Roman provinces. After the initial conquest, the really serious rebellion isn't in the first year or two, it's a little bit later. People start to think, hang on a minute, these Romans are here to stay. I'm not so sure I like this anymore. And the enemies who fought them want their revenge. So the two come together. And this is what happens. Nearly all the tribes of Gaul, not quite all, but nearly all of them will join together and rebel, and most of them more or less accept the leadership of Vercingetorix. So he has he has trouble controlling them, but he has more control over this much bigger army of Gauls than, than most tribal leaders do. So he has this strategy of not fighting the Romans in the open in a pitch battle, because he thinks, if I do that, Caesar's legions are going to chop us up. What we'll instead do is deprive them of food. So we'll even get to the point of destroying our own settlements, burning our own stocks of food, and hiding from the Romans so that the Roman staff become weak and maybe then we can defeat them. And it does, it's, it's a real challenge for Caesar. First of all, because when the rebellion breaks out, his army's scattered, he's not with it. He has to get to the army, has to bring them together. And then he has to charge around Gaul, trying to bring Vercingetorix to battle. And you know he has the siege of Avaricum where this one Gallic town has refused to destroy its 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 stores of food and its 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 town saying that well we've got strong walls we can hold out against the romans in fact they can't they they defend very fiercely it's a very like a lot of ancient sieges it's a very brutal affair it's very hard fought 
And when the Romans go in, the, the Roman soldiers by this time are pretty wild. They, they, they slaughter everybody. And remember, slaughtering everybody means you're not taking slaves, which you can sell and share in the profits. So it, it's a rare thing to do. You might kill all the adult men because they're a danger, but usually you spare everybody else because they have monetary value. You know, and it's, it's not kindness. It's, it's, it's um, practicality by Roman standards. It shows how frightened and how angry the Romans are, made worse by the fact that before Caesar goes anywhere in Gaul, there have always been Roman traders, Roman merchants among the tribes in the towns of Gaul. And this rebellion begins with a massacre of some of these people. So there's an anger there as well that the Gauls have turned on Romans that they, they should have been showing hospitality to. They, instead, they, they've, they've murdered them. So it's, it's, it's a, a tight campaign. He captures Avaricum. He tries to take Gogovia. That fails. Vercingetorix keeps retreating. But the problem is Vercingetorix can keep the Gauls to his strategy for a while. But eventually, Caesar's got his army. He's bearing down on him. He's either got to fight or he's got to take a stand somewhere or he's going to lose all credibility as a leader. So he, he goes to Elysia and you have this, this final siege where Caesar surrounds them. And this, again, is a brutal affair, you know, where the Gauls send out the civilians from their town because they don't want to have to feed them. They know that now they're surrounded, food's going to get short very soon. But Caesar won't accept them through his siege lines because he thinks, A, the Gauls might attack under cover of this, but also he'd much prefer these people to go back into the town and eat up the food that Vercingetorix's warriors want. So both sides are utterly ruthless, and these poor civilians starve to death between the two um, sets of fortifications. And you have heavy fighting when the Gauls do arrive, but Caesar again manages to move his forces around, have enough people at the right place at the right time, leading them in person sometimes, sending them under command of subordinates and others to defeat the Gauls, Vercingetorix surrenders, and you have again, Caesar just has him surrender other accounts give this dramatic version of the Gallic leader riding out in his best armour, dismounting taking off his armour and weapons, laying them at Caesar's feet and then sort of sitting giving himself up, ready to be taken away and um, dealt with as the Romans choose there was so, no magic potion, was there? Sadly not. I mean, uh, again, Asterix is another big reason I got interested in the Romans. And I used to spend a lot of time as a boy drawing the legionaries in particular mm-hmm. and the Roman soldiers, but also the Gauls. I love doing that. But no, sadly, there was not one small village of indomitable Gauls that managed to hold out <laughs> up there in, in Brittany. But um, but anyway, the books are fun. So. <laughs> Something I want to ask about because, as you know, this was in the Senate's eyes, but most I mean, as been discussed, it was probably mostly because a lot of them didn't like Caesar and they felt they would become too powerful during the Gallic campaign. But most, a lot of them, when they began massacring the towns of the local Gallic tribes, was that when they started saying, hey, this war is illegal, he committed atrocities, he should be tried for this. Is this when the Senate kind of started going against Caesar at this point? It's it's not really. I mean, the, the, the question of trying to prosecute Caesar comes from Cato and it comes earlier. And as I say, it's about this. Um, Caesar is negotiating with the Tancteri and other Germanic tribes. And whilst he's delayed the ambassadors from returning, he sends a, a force to go and attack their camp and, and massacres them. And there is even it's it's not yet fully published, but it's coming out there. There are archaeologists who think they've found the site of that massacre. Um, and a lot of bone finds. Um, and it, if if so, it does suggest that Caesar's account doesn't exaggerate the scale of this. But that's for a breach of faith. In other respects, the whole, one of the main purposes of the, the Gallic commentary, Caesar writes, is to say that everything he's done 
he's done in a properly Roman and therefore legal way for the good of the Republic. He hasn't done anything recklessly. He hasn't broken any rules because while he was consul in 59, he's actually passed a law saying this is how a governor should behave and restricting them from moving out of their province without the authority or a suitable reason for doing it. But he's gone and done it anyway. But he says, because there is a a proper reason for this. So I think the reason the Senate starts to turn against Caesar is there have always been people who hate him. And Roman politics works on the basis that if you're important and you're doing well, people think, well, you're worth having as a friend. But if you're on the way down, if you're in decline, then it's better to join with your enemies because they're going to be the next big people. I want to be friends with them, not you. You're the yesterday's man, not tomorrow's man. The thing that really shifts it that makes the civil war possible is when Pompey starts to move from being Caesar's clear ally to emphasizing that I am Pompey, I'm going to do what Pompey thinks is right. And Caesar's bitterest opponents sense that maybe they can break Pompey away from Caesar and maybe they can get Pompey, who has an army, which they don't, to stand against Caesar. And if they can do that, then... Hopefully, Caesar will just back down because he won't want to fight Pompey. Or if he does come to a fight, Pompey will win because Pompey is, after all, the great hero of the Republic. So even though Pompey has been someone in the past they've blocked, they're trying to do really to Caesar what they'd done to Pompey in the 60s BC when he'd returned from his campaigns, make his life difficult, not allow him to dominate the state. And having Pompey on their side makes it easier. One thing to remember, when you look closely at the events, most senators did not oppose Caesar. They didn't particularly like him, but what they wanted was peace. They didn't want another civil war. Because again, remember, everybody of this generation has lived through the earlier civil war. They know what it's like. They know just how appalling and um, how dangerous these times can be. So what they want, I mean, the, the, the vote that gets the most support in the Senate is a measure for both Caesar and Pompey to lay down their armies and then for Caesar to come back. But that's vetoed. So there's a succession of attempts to negotiate. And one of the problems is because Caesar can't come to Rome without laying down his command, then it's not face-to-face, it's by letters. So people sense that Caesar is vulnerable. There are some people who want to destroy him. Everybody realizes that if you take out somebody big like Caesar, then there's, there's lots of power and authority to go around that other people can grab. You know, that, there's a vacuum to be filled in that sense. So... They sense this, and it's this slow build-up. And again, rather like the Constitution of 59, each side rather thinks the other side will back down. And they keep escalating the, the thing and, and risking more and risking more. Because eventually they back Caesar into a corner where he's got to accept that probably his political career is over. That at the very least, he will stand trial, which is, even if he's found innocent, um, it's, it's damaging his reputation. You know, Pompey's never been on trial. Crassus has never been on trial. If you really are one of the big men, you're too scary for anybody to try and prosecute you. People only prosecute the ones they think are vulnerable. But probably this means the end of his career. So again, um, you know, Caesar's comment in Suetonius after the, the Battle of Pharsalus, looking at the dead uh, Pompeians, is that they wanted this, but for my army, they would have passed judgment on me. It's very hard to see what would have been so terrible about allowing Caesar to come back and have a second consulship and then perhaps a province afterwards. You know, he's as, by Roman standards, he has done good things in Gaul. And even his enemies, most of the time, have celebrated it. They have voted him more days of public thanksgiving than anybody in Rome's history, including Pompey. 
you know, it seems like 20 days. This, this is vast celebrations for these things. The excitement of land, the landing in Britain, even though it didn't achieve very much, is, is incredible. So he's done all of this. And until just months ago, you've been saying, great, Caesar, you've done marvelous things. Aren't you a hero of the Republic? And suddenly you switch around. So he thinks they'll back down. They think he'll back down. Neither side will. So you end up with a civil war that neither side's really prepared for. You know, Pompey has all these troops, but most of them are in Spain. The ones he's got in Italy aren't particularly reliable, aren't very experienced. Caesar crosses the river Rubicon into Italy with just a single legion, the 13th legion with him. So he doesn't have, most of his army is a long way away. And he keeps asking to negotiate for weeks afterwards. So even he, maybe he thinks he can still cut a deal and they can still accept him because it isn't a war about ideology. It's simply about personalities and power. And it does cause chaos throughout the Mediterranean world. A huge death toll devastates lots of communities. Again, you have to look back and say, well, what would have been so bad? There probably would have been far less damage, even if Caesar was the monster that his enemies thought he was. If you'd let him become consul, then, you know, what's so terrible about that? He's, he's already in his 50s. You know, he isn't going to live that much longer and be an active active politically so maybe yeah there's a decade or so when caesar's around important but it's it's but again they like typical romans they think they can take on their enemy they think they can win they think the gamble is worth it you know it's it's a little bit like um if you look at napoleon in 1813 the number of chances he had to negotiate with first of all russia and prussia before the austrians join in mm. and cut a better deal than he'd actually get but he keeps thinking no if i go back to war i can win because I'm Napoleon and I've read. So both sides are thinking like that. So, of course, I, I, when, when they crossed the, the Rubicon, which I don't think has been noted until this day, of course, yeah, Mussolini invented the Rubicon later. But, you know, mm. he does say the famous word, the die is cast. Mm. But I want to talk about why did Pompey choose to leave Rome and leave Rome empty? in his stead. Was this a strategic reason? Did he think uh, that it would, if Caesar went back to Rome, which we know he didn't, would that have changed the outcome of the civil war? To me, it suggests that right until the last minute, Pompey thought that Caesar would back down. I think Pompey still imagines the Caesar of 60 BC, hmm. um, the man who's going to stand for consulship. Because bear in mind, Pompey's only about six years older than Caesar, but Pompey's had a career that started when he was a teenager, when he raised his own army. You know, he's been around for a long time. He can't, probably can't take Caesar that seriously. Caesar is still the up-and-coming man. He's not my equal. And Pompey probably thought that Caesar ought to have accepted his friendship and accepted that Pompey would protect him. And he might well have done so, that he wasn't always the most reliable friend. But he's not prepared to fight a war. He's also looked and seen, well, Caesar's only got one legion, but the problem is Pompey's raised new recruits, but they're not trained. The only two legions he's got with any experience are the ones that until just a year or so before had been fighting for Caesar. And when Crassus suffers his disaster against the Parthians, the Senate starts to form an army to fight the Parthians to protect Syria. And they ask both Pompey and Caesar for a legion from their, their forces. But Pompey gives the one to them that he'd loaned to Caesar several years before after the Great Rebellion. So these are both legions that are experienced, but their experience is fighting and winning under Caesar. And Pompey's probably not quite sure which way they'll go in the Civil War when it comes to fighting their old comrades, fighting their old commanders. So militarily, he can't defend Rome. 
know, it's again, it suggests he hasn't expected this. So if he retreats, he will go, you know, and eventually says, well, I've got to give up Italy, but I'll go to Greece and I will go to the Eastern Mediterranean where I've got loads of allies, loads of friends who will, as they do, supply him with troops, supply him with money. He'll build up this army and, you know, he thinks he can win the war there. It proves to be a bad idea, but he comes close to it at Diahachium in that campaign where he nearly blockades Caesar's army into submission. Um, but Caesar again finds a way out, has the luck, breaks out, and then Pompey takes the risk at Pharsalus. And his tactics there, you know, he outnumbers Caesar. He's got far more cavalry than Caesar. His plan is a really logical one and probably would have worked against most armies and most commanders. But the problem is you're not dealing with a typical Roman army or a typical Roman commander. This is, is an army that, that has immense confidence in itself and a commander who can innovate and think of a way around every problem. So, you know, Pompey is getting on by this. He's older. He's fought all his wars, but a long time ago. He's Whereas Caesar is coming from intensive fighting, lots of victories. This is something he knows he's good at, and he's very fresh. Somebody we haven't talked about much who will now become a kind of big player on the scene is, of course, Mark Antony, who seems to leave in Rome and does rather lousy. He's a decent commander, I'm sure, I'm sure but he but he does a rather lousy job in governing Rome. He does. I mean, Caesar has a problem in that most of the Senate remains neutral in the Civil War. And they try and go to the country and not get involved. Even strikingly, the consul Marcellus, who has, when there was a rumor that Caesar had invaded Italy, takes a sword to Pompey and asks him to defend the state. That consul, who's married to um, Octavia, um, the Caesar's great niece, actually stays neutral. He doesn't fight against Caesar in the Civil War. And other people do. And people like Cicero just aren't sure. They prefer to stay out of it. But eventually he decides with Pompey. And um, so most people don't want to fight. And But of the ones who actively join Caesar, there aren't many from the really big family, families, the really big aristocrats. And that's Mark Antony's advantage. He is famous. You know, the, the Antony have been doing well recently and he's flamboyant. So that's probably what I mean. He's, he is probably a better politician than a soldier, but he is not a man of tact. He doesn't have very much military experience, which might be another reason why Caesar doesn't use him that much in his campaigns. But he's got the name, he's got the prestige to be sent to Rome to act in Caesar's place. The problem is that he's, you know, he gets drunk, he presides over public meetings when he's got a really bad hangover, he's sick into somebody's cloak or into his own lap. He does all this flamboyant, ridiculous stuff. And he's not seen, he's not a good representative for a sober, just, kind Caesar. He's an angry, bad-tempered, drunken, sort of uh, rather wild um, aristocrat as far as the Romans are concerned. But Caesar doesn't have a lot of choice. So, you know, he's a an interesting character. But even afterwards, you have to wonder, he's quite close to Caesar, but perhaps not as close as he would have been. And had Caesar not been murdered, bear in mind the conspirators did are supposed to have approached Mark Antony, but he doesn't, he doesn't join the conspiracy, but he doesn't tell Caesar about it either. Mm. They probably didn't see him as quite so close to Caesar as as we tend to see him, and as he portrayed himself in the aftermath of Caesar's murder. Hmm. And somebody else we have to talk about, of course, and that we haven't mentioned. Yes, we hmm. mentioned about 
sees this vast affairs, and one of them is Sevilla, who, of course, has a son named Brutus, who's rather fond of, but he mm. ends up joining Pompey's side, and again, he ends up being one of the murderers as well. So, so let's talk about Sevilla mm. and Brutus for a little bit before we move on in the Civil War. I mean, it's interesting. We get anecdotes about Sevilla. We don't hear a lot about her, but if you look at her, she is half-sister of Cato. So, you know, that's that's pretty strange. Her husband, the father of Brutus, has been killed by Pompey in one of the earlier civil wars in 78 BC. So it's, you know, it's said in Plutarch's biography of Brutus that he wouldn't talk to Pompey until he joins him in the civil war. Brutus is one of the up-and-coming men of the next generation. He's someone, he's got the right connections because what Servilia did through her own marriages, but also the marriages of her three daughters, was link herself to lots of key players in Roman political life. So she's one of those women who, behind the scenes, has a very sharp political mind, understands how politics works at Rome, and she can't hold office because that's not the way Roman the Roman system works, but she does the very best to get the menfolk in her life, whether her husband or particularly her son, to the best possible position, to advance their careers as much as possible. It does seem, I mean, she seems to be the only woman that Caesar has an affair with that lasts a long time. Because, for instance, he gives her a prize pearl from Britain as a gift. Um, whilst he's dictator, he sells property to her at a knockdown price. Um, although there's the rumor that we have in Suetonius that one of her daughters, so Brutus's sister, his sister Tertia, is married to Cassius, you know, the other man who will lead the conspiracy. Caesar is supposed to have had an affair with her whilst she's married to, to Cassius. I mean, there, there is an element of soap opera about all of this that, you know, you, it really is. you couldn't make up. I mean, it, and you wonder how much of, you know, we think of the personal tension within Brutus and this is something Shakespeare dwelt upon drawing on Plutarch's life of Brutus that, you know, Brutus liked Caesar personally, but just disagreed with what he'd become, disagreed with the idea of a dictator and therefore killed him. Whereas Cassius, you've got as the more ambitious men, but, you know, this is, he's killing someone who's had an affair with his wife. So, you know, how much is this personal as well? Um, and of course, Cassius has been quister to Crassus when Crassus goes and gets killed by the Parthians. Mm. So, you know, there's, and he's, when he commits suicide after the, the battle of um, Philippi, he is killed or helped to die by a Parthian. He's captured during this campaign. So there's a, a sort of very odd irony about it all. But Brutus is, the noblest Roman of them all in Shakespeare's version, and he is thought of very highly. Cicero's correspondent Atticus encourages Cicero to befriend Brutus because Brutus is one of the men who's going to be big in the next generation. Once he gets old enough to be preacher, to be consul, he's going to have those offices. He's going to be important. Everybody thinks a lot of Brutus, and he's associated with Cato. You know, Cato's his uncle. He is the Stoic philosopher like Cato. He is, you know, a very serious man. But then you also read in Cicero's letters that Brutus is charging four times the rate of interest on a loan to communities in Cicero's province than was legal. And the previous governor has loaned Brutus's agents cavalry who've ended up killing people or causing them to starve to death by blockading them in a Senate house in a city called Salamis to get his money back. And he's desperate. You know, Cicero's opinion of Brutus declines during his time as governor in Cilicia, just before the Civil War, because Brutus is just so desperate for this money. And there is a comment made of Brutus that whatever he wants, he wants really badly. He does seem to be a rather obsessive man who um, 
you know, becomes convinced that anything he does must be right. But he's important. And there were, of course, rumors at the time that Brutus was actually Caesar's son. Now, it's unlikely. The ages don't really work out. But clearly, this, you know, this affair with Servilia lasts a long time for Caesar. And I always wonder if the reason is that, yes, she was probably, you know, very attractive and all that, and it was fun. But she's also a very sharp political mind, a very intelligent rather ambitious person. So someone rather like Caesar himself. And I wonder if that gave a closeness to the affair that's lacking in many of the others where he's simply, you know, sleeping with other men's wives and that's fun, but he moves on to the next one and the next one. Um, That's conjecture. That's going beyond the evidence. But, um, you know, I feel there's a similarity to Cleopatra, who's also ambitious, clever, sophisticated, ruthless, Mm. um, and has the glamour of being a queen as well, which is all very exciting. But I think the two women that seem to have mattered most to Caesar in his life, with the possible exception of his first wife, Cornelia, because, again, it might be reading the sources too literally. He doesn't seem to have had any affairs until she's dead. Um, It's because these are women that are, they give something more to Caesar than simply just, you know, romance and sex and all that sort of thing. They're they're, they're intelligent, Mm. interesting people to be with and, you know, pretty pretty sharp, pretty cruel, pretty ruthless as well, and very charming. So they're very much like him himself. You know, they're, describing them is describing Caesar. Now, now, of course, as you know, this being ancient Rome, women weren't allowed to hold offices or go into politics. But as you mentioned, Sevilla was, um, I want to draw another comparison as well, and relate to Agrippina the Younger, they would both be very powerful women behind mm. the throne, if you will, to, for the lack of a better words, they would wear did have in, huge influences in Roman politics, even though they weren't allowed to hold offices themselves. It's, it's the thing. I mean, an interesting thing is that um, many of the aristocratic women of this generation receive far more of an education than had probably been common before. So you, you read of women who are patrons of the arts, who even write poetry themselves. And, you know, think of... Um, Octavia, when she's married to Mark Antony, they go to philosophical lectures in Athens. Mm. You know, it's that sort of, it's not, yes, they have their parties and their feasts and something, but there's also that intellectual element. So I think they're better educated. Rome has always had this tradition of the strong mother as a powerful figure, often because women tended to marry much older men. So there's a fair chance that your father is dead by the time you become politically important, but your mother is probably of middle age and still active and knows people. And that's the way it worked. You couldn't, they couldn't formally hold office. They couldn't stand for things. They couldn't vote. But again, sometimes we forget that these are just human beings and people with strong personalities will make that personality felt no matter how, in theory, repressive and restrictive society is. Because in the end, if you're in a house, if it's your parent, if it's your wife, you know, these are people you talk to. These are people who can influence you. And the more, the smarter they are, the more dominant they are, the more influence they will have. And if you're sensible, you know, Servilia's husband seems to have been quite content for her to have her affair with Caesar because Caesar helps him get the consulship. So, you know, there's an element where they're calculating and you realize actually this person really knows what they're doing. So, yes, fine, I'll, I'll listen to her because she's talking sense and she knows how to get things done. So, it's, it's again, it's a very interesting period. The women of the imperial family will obviously have a different way of exercising power. But again, perhaps Livia is another good example with Augustus. You know, she is credited with 
influencing him, discussing decisions. The only ones that survive in Suetonius are discussions about what should we do with young Claudius? You know, is he fit for public life or not? But they're debating these things. But Livia traveled with Augustus on most of his journeys, you know, and she has, she acts as patron to the women of Rome, but also to foreign leaders. That's starting to happen. It will be more pronounced. The big difference is that the aristocratic women can't really leave Rome until after Caesar, you know, it's often said, oh, well, you know, um, Caesar doesn't have a child with any of his wives apart from Cornelia, but he marries Calpurnia and then within a few months goes to Gaul for 10 years and she stays in Rome because the women do not go out to the provinces. That is simply not done. And it's, it only really starts to happen with the, the second triumvirate and then with the imperial family. Hmm. So, you know, with the best will in the world, you can write it any sort of affectionate letter you like. But if you're not together for 10 years, you're not going to have any children. Um, so it's, it's sometimes people forget these practical things. So the women can also be your agent back in Rome that you're writing to and start to remind people, well, look, you know, my husband's out there doing these things. So remember how great he is, how much he's doing for the Republic. So they do have a role to play. It's just a very different role. And we only glimpse it. We see little bits of it, but most of it is going on behind the scenes. Mm. And, you know, speaking of women and influence, there were there really an impact on Caesar because he would, you know, launch games for his mother and his, mm. I believe, his daughter as well, which was never mm. done in Rome mm. until then. So they, mm. they were very, women were very influential in Caesar's life. Oh, very much so. And, you know, his aunt, um, he, he first gains prominence because at his aunt's funeral, who'd been married to Marius, he displays images of Marius, images of people who've been condemned by the Sullen regime that's still dominating the Senate. So it's a it's a bold thing to do. And he talks about her family background as well. And so Caesar is probably pushing the role of, of women to make it more public. But again, it's, it's partly he needs to stand out. And as it happens, um, the women in his life give him an opportunity to do this. So you can stage funeral games for your daughter, um, because you want to stage funeral games and you still need the excuse. You can't just put on a gladiatorial show, as will become the case under the emperors. You have to do it as part of funeral rites. So you can commemorate your father's death many years after he's died because you want to. Um, and then you do it with your mother, you do it with your daughter as well. So these are opportunities, but it's it's a sign of just how successful some of these aristocrats are becoming, that their, their women start to have more and more of a, of a public role. And that will just increase during the civil wars after Caesar's death, and then particularly in the imperial period. And of course, as we mentioned, it's because I, I think, I don't, don't remember, it was his aunt, right? But that he survived during the summer years when he was outlawed because of women, that he survived yep. in hiding as well. Yes, it's supposed to be his mother and her, her relations that persuade Sulla to let him come back. Mm. So, you know, and we've got these cases, you know, mothers in particular, as I say, hold a, quite a prominent place in um the roman aristocratic tradition and it's you know the the mother of the gracchi cornelia the mother of the gracchi who these trib radical tribunes who both met violent deaths in the second century bc but she's credited with being a major influence on them inspiring them to go off and do great things and of turning down a marriage proposal from a, a foreign king um you know that shows how important they are in the same way roman aristocratic men think they are the equal to any king the, the women start to take on this 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 role as well they're much more restricted because they don't travel. So they always remain in Rome or Italy 
um, except in rare cases where people start to go into exile. So again, in the Civil War, um, Pompey's wife will go, who's the widow of Publius Crassus, the son of Crassus, who'd been killed with him at the, uh, or killed at the Battle of Carhae a few days before Crassus himself is killed. You know, she, so she ends up and she's there when Pompey is, is murdered when he tries to land in Egypt and she sees that happening. So at this time, during the civil wars and that crisis, the families start to go with the leaders when they, they go into to exile, whether voluntary or not. But it's, it's, it's not, you know, that's new. That's something that's quite different. Let's talk about Pompey fleeing to Egypt, Egypt after the battle was, after that battle is fought out because, you know, he goes to Greece first, but does, does he leave Brutus behind in Greece before he goes to Egypt himself? Which is, I don't remember reading that Brutus goes with him. To Egypt. Most of Pompey flees. Pompey is supposed to, and again, remember, we have Caesar's version of the Battle of Pharsalus. Pompey gives up before the battle's actually over. And that's something a Roman commander should never do. A Roman commander should never admit defeat, no matter how disastrous the battle has gone. He should always prepare for the, rally his army and prepare for the next battle. Pompey gallops away and goes with his family, gives up. Lots of other senators keep fighting or surrender to Caesar in the aftermath. And Brutus is one of those, like Cicero, like Cassius. Both Brutus and Cassius surrender to Caesar at this point and are pardoned by him. Not only that, but they're given political posts. They're made praetors in a couple of years' time, and they're marked down for the consulship. So the irony of the um, the conspiracy is that these are all people who've done very, very well out of Julius Caesar and stand to have good careers with him as dictator, but they want, they feel that that's wrong. There shouldn't be a dictator. They, they need more freedom to be the proper leaders of the Roman Republic. But most people have made a deal with, with Caesar. It's only a few. Pompey flees on his own. Others like Cato weren't at Pharsalus itself, but they and Metellus Scipio and others will go and eventually end up in Africa, start to um, raise armies there, and then eventually have the final campaign of Labienus and the like in, in 45 BC in Spain. But Pompey has gone to the, the areas where he's owed lots of favors, and he goes to Egypt. He doesn't want to surrender. Now, partly that's because... Maybe he feels it's it's not safe that Caesar couldn't let him live, even though Caesar has made, you know, paraded his clementia, his clemency. He's he's not killed the people who fought against him unless he's released them once and they go and fight against him again. Then maybe he does. But mostly he lets them go. And you know, he doesn't even put them send them into exile. He pardons them. And but it's it would be humiliating for Pompey to have to accept Caesar's pardon. Hmm. And um, but whether he's going off to Egypt in the hope of raising an army and fighting the civil war. There's a rumor that he's supposed to have considered going to Parthia, but decides against it because he doesn't want to risk his, his beautiful young wife at the voluptuous court of the Parthian king. But on the other hand, that might just be saying, well, look how far Pompey had fallen. He's thinking of going to a foreign enemy rather than staying within the Roman Rome's territory. So, you know, can we believe that or not? Hard to say. Um, but Yes, whether he thinks in Egypt he can either negotiate with Caesar or he can form a new army, or whether he's just trying to be safe and thinking, well, where can I take my, my family and live on? And he's, of course, pursued by Caesar, but he's already dead by the time Caesar gets to Egypt. Yeah, let's talk about the death of Pompey before a second, because I said that the Ptolemies at the time is ruling Egypt and the Cleopatra's brother, who they had a bit falling out. They do get married at first, but they do, I think so, but... 
they do fall out and there's kind of a civil war, I guess, in the country as well. But Ptolemy, the boy king, he thinks that killing Pompey when it arrives in, the, in the Egypt, that, that it will be a favour for Caesar. But that's certainly not the case, as we will find out. No, I mean, the success of the Ptolemies, who, you know, a dynasty begun by one of Alexander's general who seizes Egypt and some of the lands around, is that they make it so that only a Ptolemy can be king or queen. The problem is any Ptolemy can be king or queen. So the most dangerous enemy for Ptolemy is another Ptolemy. So you have all these incestuous marriages and they family kill each other. And Cleopatra has succeeded jointly with her brother. And yes, they're probably married, though he's, you know, he's so young, it's unlikely anything has, has happened as such. It's probably a nominal thing at this stage, but they hate each other. And there are always factions within the Ptolemaic court that see it to their advantage to get rid of one ruler and back another. That'll be, they'll get the best jobs, they'll get the most prestige, the most influence, the most wealth. His advisors probably tell the young Ptolemy, look, Pompey's lost. Caesar's the victor. The person you want as a friend and ally is the victor, not the loser. So kill Pompey. That will please Caesar. After all, if somebody was to come to you with Cleopatra's head, you'd be pleased with that. They do it. Now, when Caesar arrives, he at least presents himself as being outraged by this. You know, this is dreadful. A foreigner has dared to kill one of the most famous Romans ever. This was my friend, my son-in-law in the past. You know, this I would have spared Pompey. Whether that's genuine or whether it's very convenient for him that somebody else has killed Pompey, but he so he doesn't have to. You know, Pompey's out of the way. He's not a danger anymore, but he is... Um, I don't get the blame. So who knows? Or maybe it was genuine. It's very hard to say. But Caesar then intervenes in the civil war in Egypt between Ptolemy and Cleopatra. And Caesar needs money. You know, he's got these huge armies he's raised to fight the civil war. He's now got lots of Pompey's former soldiers that he's taken over. He can't just let them go free because they might join another Pompeian army. He needs to keep them loyal by paying them. He needs money to do that. He and Pompey had um, backed Cleopatra and Ptolemy's father being restored. And the promise for that was payment for that has not been delivered. So there's a huge amount of money, a huge debt owing that Caesar says, well, I need this money now. So he intervenes. Cleopatra makes contact with him. She's famously smuggled into the palace and, you know, appears in a, a laundry bag. Caesar and Cleopatra become lovers. Um, he backs her claim in the civil war and he ends up getting besieged within the palace area for a long time. It's quite desperate. He doesn't have many troops with him. Eventually, reinforcements help arrives. He wins the civil war. Cleopatra becomes not sole monarch, but now has a younger brother as her co-ruler. Hmm. So you've got all that. It's a fairly desperate, it's sort of interlude in the Roman civil war. It's almost a distraction, hmm. particularly as Caesar spends about six months cruising down the Nile with Cleopatra afterwards. He almost doesn't want to go back to the work of running the Roman state. Something I want to talk about as well before we move on to Caesar going back to Rome is the looks of Cleopatra, because nobody really knows what she looked like except her famous bone behind hmm. her. But she wasn't African descent. She was Greece because the Ptolemies were Greece, so she wasn't of African descent. She was, but we don't really know because the statues, I think, look so different to each every yeah, time. I mean, and unlike Caesar, where we do have a certain idea hmm. where what he may have looked like, but this is not the case with Cleopatra. 
there aren't good images of Cleopatra that we can definitely say are Cleopatra, but also are a lifelike representation of Cleopatra. On the coin, she's made to look very much like a Ptolemy with rather bulging eyes, a hooked nose. Um, there are There's a bust or two that are, might be Cleopatra, but we can't be certain. Other um, carvings, reliefs on Egyptian temples, but are very stylized, could be anybody. Yes, I mean, the Ptolemies are Macedonian Greek. Um, they've married into the Seleucids a little bit. So there are a few, um, there's a little bit of Syrian um, blood in there as well. But as far as we can tell in her family tree, it's all Macedonian and Greek. There are gaps in the family tree. We don't know who her mother was. Uh, at least we can't be sure. It's quite possibly that her mother and father were brother and sister, um, which means that they're, they're Ptolemies. Um, There's a lot of incest in the Ptolemaic line. We can never quite be sure. Obviously, you can't be 100% certain that a baby that is recognized as the son of this particular Ptolemy is, in fact, the son of that particular Ptolemy and not the product of an affair. But there's no direct evidence for that. It's possible that um, there were a few mistresses, slaves involved somewhere. But again, no evidence. And if they were, we don't know who they were. So no one in the ancient world talks about Cleopatra's coloring her complexion, the color of her hair, the color of her eyes, the color of her skin. The ancients don't talk a lot about that sort of thing. It doesn't matter so much to them. Alexander the Great was described as being lion-like, tawny in the color of his hair. Um, Not perhaps the sort of bright, dyed blonde that you have in the modern movies, but fair-haired rather than very dark-haired, as are other Macedonians. Some of the Ptolemies are talked of as having golden hair and of sprinkling gold dust in their hair to make it sparkle all the more. So she could have been almost any complexion, any eye color, any um, hair color, but it overwhelmingly it's European, possibly with some Egyptian mixed in and a little bit of Syrian mixed in, but overwhelmingly it's Greek Macedonian. That's, that's the evidence. But what she actually looked like beyond that. Dio, Cassius Dio describes her as beautiful. Plutarch has a passage where he says that it wasn't her beauty that was most attractive and people interpret that as saying, well, she wasn't beautiful. But actually what he's saying is it that wasn't the first thing. What mattered was her personality. And you can look at some, you know, some of the most famous movie stars, the most glamorous people around, the women we think of as incredibly attractive. They're not necessarily symmetrically, perfectly beautiful. There's just something about them that draws our attention, you know, that we have to look at them yeah. and that makes us think... So I think Cleopatra had that sort of charisma. She might not have been the most beautiful woman ever to live, but she probably was extremely, um, you know, she was good looking, but but it was more the personality, the wit, the liveliness within her and something about her that just made everybody notice Cleopatra. But no, I mean, there's no evidence at all. There are gaps within her ancestry where you can say we don't know, but to leap from that and say that, well, she was, you know, she was therefore of Southern sub-Saharan African um, origin, there is no evidence for that at all. It, you, can, you can't say 100% it's absolutely impossible, but then you can't say any, you know, you, you, you could equally say, well, maybe there was some Indian slave or Chinese slave that had come across in the trade with the Ptolemies and that becomes a royal mistress and that that's mixed in. But there's, there's no evidence for anything like that at all. All the evidence we have suggests exclusively Greek Macedonian, as I say, with that little bit of Seleucid connection that's partly Syrian. You know, we talked about the Russian interbreeding. Breeding. I want to compare it to the later Habsburg and perhaps Charles mm. V being one example of heavily inbred sign. Was there sign of inbreeding on Cleopatra 
uh, as with the case of Charles V, where you can see the uh, Habsburg jaw, kind of that kind of thing. Do, do we have this kind of case with Cleopatra? Not really. I mean, the the, the Ptolemaic men all seem all to have been very fat, very inclined to put on weight, quite heavy. Um, the same is not said about the women, but you know, we don't know. Um, whereas you can see, you know, that sort of Habsburg chin and the shape of the face on the, the portraits mm-hmm. that they and bear in mind, the Habsburg intermarriage is not as close as brothers and sisters marrying, as um, aunts marrying their nephews, as this sort of, you know, uncles marrying nieces. So you do have to wonder. And Cleopatra produces four very healthy children. Mm. So, and seems to be physically robust, healthy herself, you know, and, and very intelligent. Um, so you do wonder a little bit how the Ptolemies have got away with all this, this incest without more consequences. Perhaps there were other children who, who die in infancy who don't survive birth. Um, mm. We don't know. That's one of the factors where you sort of, you, you start to wonder, well, has there actually been a bit more of a mixture? And are some of these people who are proclaimed as the child of Ptolemy the such and such, are they actually not fathered on the, the sister wife, but fathered on a mistress, mm. but accepted? Um, on the other hand, you know, you can within animal populations breed as close as that, and it doesn't always lead to disaster. But the, no, you'd expect something like the Habsburgs, because as I say, this this incest appears to be much closer. It doesn't seem to happen. Um, you know, the, the Ptolemies are clearly not nice people, but that's the environment where your own family are your your most likely enemies. So you know, it's you can't trust your children as soon as they're adults because they're, um, you know, it, it's so. But whether that's due to some genetic problem and some sort of mental illness, or more likely just the situation politically, uh, makes it happen. But um, and of course, we have to move on because we can't talk for quite some quite some time. Mm. But, but of course, it does give birth to a son of Tate. Oh, sorry, Caesarian. But let's talk, go back to Caesar. I just wanted to talk about Cleopatra's looks and everything mm. because it's a, such a fascinating part mm. of her and a mystery around her. her. Mm. But let's talk about Caesar returning to Rome and mm. his governing politics because they did have great plans for Rome but never put put in place as well. But it, let's talk, when does people start to realise that he's made himself dictator and when does people say he's not going to be like Sulla and retire? When does some people realize that this is going to be for a lifetime and we have to get, take care of this? It's it's so hard to tell because the thing we forget is how little time Caesar had. He doesn't spend that much time in Rome because he comes back from Egypt. On the way, he's got to fight the campaign in Pontus, the Zela campaign. He goes to Rome, then he's off to Africa again to fight the civil war there. He's back to Rome, but he has to go to Spain again. You know, he's only in Rome for six months or so before he's murdered. He doesn't have long periods where he can plan a lot. He does an incredible amount in a short time, and he reforms things. You know, The fact that we still effectively follow the calendar created by Julius Caesar, you know, with advice from uh, technical experts from Egypt and elsewhere. But, you know, the Julian character in its calendar in its slightly modified form is what we're using today. Um, you know, that's there aren't many people that have that level of influence on the world for so long. So he does a lot. I think as well, there is a tendency to look at Caesar Augustus later on and say, well, he doesn't get murdered, so he must do things right that Caesar gets wrong. But I think it's a different generation. The The people who accept Caesar Augustus have had decades more of civil war, of death, of prescriptions, of murder. They just don't, well, they're tired. They want anything. They want stability. 
Caesar is dealing with people who are embarrassed because they fought against him, lost, and then they've been treated very nicely for him by him. And you know, Roman aristocrats don't like to be in debt to anyone because it it, it shows that that person has more power, more influence than they have. So um, you have with Caesar, there is very much a sense of certainly with people like Brutus, probably some of the others that. The Republic shouldn't work this way. There shouldn't be a dictator for life. It doesn't matter what he's called, whether he wants to be king or anything like that. Personally, I suspect not. I think that's probably later propaganda from the Civil War period where people are saying, look, we had to kill him because this is what he would have done if, if we hadn't. Mm-hmm. Um, but he doesn't seem to be planning to retire. You know, that, that famous comment that, again, is not dated, um, that Sulla was politically illiterate. Um, when he resigned the dictatorship. You know, Caesar is not planning on going anywhere. Other than this three-year war, he's planning to fight the, the Dacians and the Parthians. So Rome now has one master. And although it's a good master who's do- making good decisions, who's doing the right thing, that is not how the Republic should work. And that seems to be the motivation for Brutus, perhaps for many of the others. But bear in mind as well, for Roman aristocrats, these are ambitious men. They have done okay under Caesar. They're doing quite well. But if they're the men who kill the dictator and they will then be the leaders for the next generation of Rome's political life, which means they're going to do incredibly well in the future. So there's a desire for glory as well. They seem rather naive. They seem to think Brutus in particular, you could just kill Caesar and everything will go back to being a republic just as it had been. And bear in mind, the republic hasn't worked properly since 88 BC when Sulla marched on Rome. You know, there's been very little. The civil war has happened or been threatened for a lot of the time since then. Very few prominent men have died of natural causes. They've nearly all been killed by someone else, by another Roman. So, you know, it is naive to think that you can just kill Caesar and everything will be all right. But it takes a while to break down after Caesar's murder. And Caesar clearly assumes that everyone will be practical about this and think, well, look, I'm doing the right thing. I'm ruling well. I'm not cruel. I'm not vicious. This is for the good of Rome. I'm putting the Roman Republic back together again things are starting to get back to some sort of normality so it would they would be foolish to kill me because if they kill me there's going to be another civil war Hmm. and he's right but he doesn't realize the emotional attachment that men like brutus have to um the ideal of this republic and bear in mind that personal element you know with brutus you've got all this other stuff going on about caesar's affair with Servilia, cassius caesar's been supposedly sleeping with his wife as well And bear in mind, you've got the example of Brutus' uncle Cato. Cato is the man Brutus has modeled himself after, you know, the great Stoic, the stern paragon of Roman traditional virtue. Cato has not only refused to accept Caesar's clemency, but has then tried to kill himself. And when that fails, he stabs himself, but he doesn't die. And the surgeon comes in, his son gets his wounds treated. Cato waits for them all to go, rips open his own the stitches on his wounds, pulls out his own entrails and dies so spectacularly, gruesomely, as a proof to say, I will never give in to Caesar. I will never accept that Caesar has won, that Caesar has the right to be merciful to me. So Brutus, who's married Cato's daughter, his own cousin, um, after this, you know, he's clearly all this he's trying to deal with. He's dealing with the fact there's a, there's a guilt element that I've actually done rather well from Caesar and I do rather like Caesar, but look what Cato was willing to do. Why, you know, how can I do less than that? How can I not do everything in my power to end this dictatorship? Because it's wrong, no matter how good Caesar is. 
Something I want to talk about as well, there was quite a lot of, of course, the sentence was huge, I believe 600 people at the time, but there was about 60 conspirators in in the conspiracy to murder Caesar. So it's it's surprising that nobody snitched, in a sense, to Caesar, that they kept this so secret up until the very end. Well, and, and you, have a, you have, of course, the account in Plutarch that Shakespeare's play follows of the warning from the soothsayer of yeah. Calpurnia, you know, that everybody, the person giving the petition, look, you know, read this, Caesar, mm. it's important, it's about you. Um, I mean, the Senate's bigger than that. It's grown. Caesar has put lots of new members in the Senate. Senate's probably numbering about... 950 960 by this time Mm. but even so conspiracy is big plutarch claims that antony is approached by the conspirators doesn't join them but doesn't tell caesar either and maybe you know a lot of people think perhaps caesar himself thinks they'd be dumb to kill me and maybe he thinks yes they're going to complain yes they're going to mutter yes they're going to plot but they won't actually do anything and there's also a question of, of how does Caesar behave? He's about to leave on campaign when it would be much harder to get at him. Mm. If he walks around protected by a bodyguard, then he looks like a nervous man, like a dictator. If he strides about Rome, walking in the streets, going openly to meetings of the Senate, then it shows that he's confident. He doesn't think there is a threat. Maybe that will work. I mean, it's a gamble, but... If he'd been afraid, he probably would have started to lose credibility. His whole regime relies on the fact that, yes, he's got this military backing, but also, you know, I'm Caesar, I'm good, I'm doing this for the good of Rome. I may be dictator, but I'm I'm really ruling well. Therefore, you know, accept me. You might not like it, you might not like the idea, but this is what is necessary for the good of Rome. So he is probably trying to seem confident and takes a gamble. Again, as Caesar, you know, he's taken lots of gambles. You have all these stories about him being a bit tired of life, saying, you know, I've already done enough for glory, for reputation, doesn't care whether he lives or dies. Rome needs me more than I need Rome. You know, I'm just tired and fed up. Maybe, maybe not. We don't know. We don't know enough about his health. But if you look at some of the the problems that are raised, some of the things that the conspirators complain about and Caesar's critics, you actually get to a situation where it was hard for Caesar to do, to get it right. So for instance, you have the meeting where a delegation of the Senate led by the magistrates come to Caesar to tell him of an award of honours. And Caesar is sitting, working and writing. He doesn't stand up to greet the consuls. And he's blamed for that. It's saying it's a sign of his arrogance. There's even the story that one of his friends stops him. He was about to get up to greet them and they stop him. But in Roman law, the dictator didn't have to stand up to anybody because everybody else's imperium lapses when there's a dictator. So he's technically correct. If he'd stood up, then it probably would have been said, well, you're not behaving to the dignity of your office. Mm. But when he doesn't stand up, then it's said, well, look, he doesn't, he's not respecting the magistrates of the Roman Republic. He basically can't win. The only way he can win is by staying alive, letting the Republic sort of gradually people get used to the idea. So I think there's a lot of, I stride around, I look confident. This is the way I convince people, look, you know, you may not like me, but this is the best thing for Rome. So just, you know, accept it. Things will get better. At no point in his life does Caesar mark out a successor. Mm. You know, so again, people are claiming, yes, he wants to be king. Yes, he wants heirs, all this sort of thing. But he hasn't actually done anything. So it's still, you know, he's killed before he has a chance really to show what he planned for the longer term future. So it's it's complicated and it's all then, everything is confused by all the propaganda in the civil war that follows Caesar's death as each side tries to portray a different Caesar. 
So, so when does Octavius feel like he has the right to, you know, the inherit Caesars and not Brutus has the right to, who he seemed closer to at the time rather than Octavian, who well, does end up being Augustus, of course. Octavian is still very young. He's tried to go to the Spanish campaign, but was too ill, arrives after it's over. Caesar has now sent him to over to Greece, where he's being educated, but also given military training. So Caesar presumably is going to take him on his eastern expedition. But Roman politics doesn't work in a way where you can bequeath any office to your son. You can bequeath your reputation, your wealth, that gives them a huge assets in their political career, but you can't, it's not the consulship, none of these offices, even the dictatorship, they're not hereditary. They're not something you can pass on. He really only becomes important afterwards, and it's a surprise to everyone. He is made the main heir to Caesar's private property in Caesar's will, and as part of that, he takes Caesar's name. That's that's a fairly common cause. Now, Brutus, for instance, we call him Brutus, but he's actually a Civilius Caipio because he's accepted um, a legacy in the same way and changed his name, but he's, he keeps to the older name. That's how he's referred to because that name is more famous. So when the young Octavian hears of Caesar's death, he does something that nobody expected. He takes this gift of money, being made the principal heir, as adoption, which is something you couldn't do in Roman law posthumously and something Caesar has definitely not done during his lifetime. You know, he's shown him some favor, but it's early days. We don't know what Caesar was planning in the longer term. But the fact that he comes back to Rome and starts to goes into, the, you know, starts to rally Caesar's former soldiers, some of his supporters, some of the people who supported Caesar but don't particularly like Mark Antony or don't think Mark Antony is doing enough to avenge Caesar. And then he proclaims himself and goes to Rome and says he intends to inherit not only Caesar's name and money, but Caesar's offices, Caesar's power. This is completely unprecedented. That's not how Rome works. It's treating it like a monarchy. And it doesn't work at first, but over time, with Caesar's money, with Caesar's name, he starts to rally supporters and he proves to be very politically savvy. But, you know, Mark Antony doesn't take him seriously for a long time because you weren't important in Roman public life until you got older. Hmm. So this kid will break all the rules and get away with a lot. But it's, there is a reason why it becomes, you know, he becomes the first emperor. Um, it all, it couldn't have happened without Caesar's name, without Caesar's money and reputation, but it's unlikely that this is what Caesar intended himself. But, and then it, it distorts how we look back at Caesar because this is what's going to happen. But that's a, that's another big complicated story as to how that happens. And then, well, the rest is Roman history. I think we're going to round it up there. Thank you so much for coming back on. It's been a pleasure to, to have you back as always. And um, if you people want to read the book, which they absolutely should, you go much more detail in here than we did in this episode. Where can people find the other works as well? And if you want to have any social media, you might want to share that we want to put in the description links. Anything? Um, really, if you just go to my website, adriangoldsworthy.com, you'll find details of all the different books. And but they're all widely available in bookshops on Amazon, on you know most other online services as well. So uh, in in English, but in a fair few other languages, depending on the book as well. So they're they're all they're all out there.
Thank you so much for coming on again. And this has been with that H12. We are we are available on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcast, wherever you can find podcasts these days. Um please, if you are on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, write a little review of this podcast if you like this episode. Also make sure to check out the other episode on the Roman Army, which I highly recommend. And please like, share, and subscribe. And I'll see you next time.